and so another year goes by where Ducati put the red in Red Bull Ring. Welcome back to Bike Live. Let's go! Three from three. Welcome everyone to Bike Live episode 73 as we look back on a third consecutive Ducati victory at the Red Bull Ring since its return to MotoGP. Uh, the Bologna-based team dominating once again with their third consecutive victory with their third different rider in the last three years as Marc Marquez is thwarted once again at the only circuit on the cal current calendar that he's visited but not won at. Um, we'll talk about the race that we got, a brilliant battle in the end between Marquez and Jorge Lorenzo who gave Ducati their third win in a row uh, at the circuit in Spielberg uh, and all the other stories to come from MotoGP last weekend including uh, Yamaha's dreadful season hitting another low in a season full of them. Um, we'll also discuss the situation at Honda as Cal Crutchlow had one of his better races of the season. Uh, and we'll discuss two brilliant races in the lower classes, arguably the race of the year anywhere in the world in Moto2, uh, as Francesco Bagnaia and Miguel Oliveira put a MotoGP caliber display on uh, in the intermediate class. Uh, and Moto3 as Marco Bezzecchi took his second one of the year to underline his championship credentials. Uh, while Jorge Martin just underlined just how tough he is by finishing third with a broken wrist. Um, we'll also cover all the other news stories that have taken place away from the racetrack this week. Uh, and we'll look ahead to this weekend as British Superbikes returns at one of its most unique venues of them all. Uh, as we see who looks to become the king of the mountain at Cadwell Park uh, this weekend. Uh, I'm Lewis Sutterby. A warm welcome to all of you once again for listening uh, either for downloading or, as several of you are doing right now, listening live uh, on Discord. So many thanks to all of you that are listening uh, right at this moment. Uh, and for the second time this week, if you listen to both of our weekly uh, podcasts, um, we have a panellist who's taking part in this show on a very special day for them. Because as Ryan King celebrated his birthday earlier this week by recording episode 155 of Motorsport 101, I introduce episode 73 of Bike Live by saying happy birthday, Andre Harrison. Hey, hey, everybody. Thanks to everyone who sent in well wishes and happy birthday wishes. I'm 26 years young today. Um, thank you all so much for that. It's very kind of you um, to remind me how old I am as well, which is always delightful being the grandpappy of the motorsport industry as we know it, even though this is a year and a half older than me, which is, you know, start on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, just, you know, just listeners, why I haven't started ripping on him for his age yet? Because I'm 28 in a week's time. <laughs> We're all August kids. It's really ridiculous. Like King's yeah. on the 12th, I'm on the 17th, and you're 24. 20, I want to say 23rd. Lewis? Third, that was a day out, my bad. Um, but yeah, we're all August kids. As we get. So anyone that's outside the boxes are days in November. But uh, yes, I mean, even, even Rebecca James is an August kid as well, if I'm not mistaken. Sure um, yeah, so God, we're all oh, August no, kids. Is December. I should know this because I was oh, your birthday Christmas. one year. Yeah, because um, it's the same with but, my uh, mum. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I, yeah well, as, Dre, as Dre calls himself the granddad of uh, Motorsport 101, I'm sat here a year and a bit older thinking. Yeah, you, you say you say that now. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not even the oldest guy in M101 either because RJ's 28. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, well, there's hope for me yet then. Um, in that case, <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, in whilst we uh, whilst we discuss our our birthdays, we have some uh, 
some exciting news to bring you here on uh, here on Bike Live on the Motorsport 101, which you may have already found out if you follow us on social media. Um, and the places you can find us on social media, facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. And the most important of them really this week is our Twitter, at Motorsport underscore 101, Dre, because those who head there have perhaps as good an incentive as ever to not only follow us there, but back us on Patreon. Explain. Yes, indeed. We have our very first Motorsport 101 giveaway this weekend. We are, I, out of my generous Patreon backers' pockets, I'm joking, um, <laughs> are giving away a copy of F1 2018 um, on the console of your choice. All you've got to do is find the tweet over on our Twitter page at MattMotorsport underscore 101, retweet the tweet, and follow our page. You've got until August 20th, and if you're a Patreon backer, you get two chances to win if you are eligible to win by retweeting and following the post so as good a time as any to be a patreon backer because hey i might be slipping you a copy of f1 2018 before it comes out on august 24th you've got until monday august 20th to be able to enter so by the time this goes out you'll probably still have at least a day or so to uh, to enter so i'll pick a winner out on tuesday the 21st and hopefully you'll get a copy of the game sent out to you just in time for release day so Best of luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get entering uh, now um, over at our Twitter at Motorsport underscore uh, 101. The other places you can find is, of course, our YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Uh, regular show highlights going up on there. Head over there right now if you uh, missed our discussion on the current situation surrounding Alex Marquez in Moto2. Don't worry. Unlike some of our recent uploads, that one is still very much... Uh, <laughs> Very much valid a race. Relevant, yeah, uh, yeah. Very, very much relevant because he pretty much uh, had a very another weekend to get at Austria last weekend, as you'll hear later on. Um, you can also um, find our website motorsport101.com, where all of our written content and all of our weekly shows can be found. Um, and as Dre mentioned, if you back us on Patreon, um, not only do you get double the opportunity to enter uh, our giveaway to win a copy of F1 2018, but you can also listen to these podcasts. Um, earlier than everyone else by either backings at the $5 level um, and getting the early access or by backings at the $10 level and having access to our Discord server and being able to listen to these live. Although, um, as Dre has done out of the goodness of his heart this week by uh, uh, celebrating his birthday, he has given all Discord, uh, sorry, all Patreon backers at just a buck the opportunity to listen to this week's episode of Motorsport 101 uh, on early access. And uh, Dre, it's an episode, your favourite kind of Motorsport 101 podcast, one that's dominated entirely by Fernando Alonso. My favourite! Yeah. <laughs> Why would I ever be celebrating this? Um, yes, it, it pretty much was the Fernando Alonso episode. Not for the first time around here, to be honest with you. But uh, hey, it, you know, what happens when you announce your retirement mere hours before we actually start recording? Thank God we recorded on Tuesday. Thank God! Um, but uh, yep, it is a big one featuring all the talk about Fernando Alonso's retirement. His legacy, the next step, possibly, probably IndyCar, close brackets. But um, yeah, yeah covered our bases in the intro. Yeah, we did. It was it's, it's one of our best, uh, as, as Kelly said on Twitter. So thanks for that, Kelly. Much appreciated. Thank Lewis for that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, all the Alonso talk. We we actually play a game of trying to predict the 2019 grid with some surprising outcomes. One like one 2019 grid minus one cheeky Checo apparently. Uh, you'll see why we came to that conclusion in the episode itself. And talking a little bit about IndyCar as well, the run down the last five rounds of the season coming up, we're starting with Pocono this weekend. And Scott Dixon uh, announcing he's staying with Chip and turning down a McLaren offer, which uh, kind of suggests that McLaren may or may not be entering IndyCar very soon. 
just throwing that one out there. But uh, yeah, Dixon, IndyCar City season, and a Pocono preview, all of that. Um, in a pretty heat, almost two-hour edition of Motorsport 101, episode 155, much ado about Nando, will be available by the time this goes out. Yeah, and uh, we will uh, talk about episode 156 uh, a little bit later on. Um, in the show towards the end of uh, this week's edition of Bike Live. Let's crack on then with the action from Austria um, last weekend. The Red Bull Ring, or as all MotoGP teams and riders who are not backed by Red Bull call it, Spielberg. Um, hey. The Austrian Grand Prix that took place last weekend. Um, and it was a race that was very nearly won by a Red Bull-backed rider. In the end, he was beaten at the final corner by a monster-backed rider uh, at the final corner in, in Jorge Lorenzo. Um, but energy drinks aside, Dre, because I know um, we have... Uh, a little bit of, well, a little bit of support for certain energy <clears throat> suppliers based on their uh, their uh, helping of us getting to Grand Prix in recent times. But um, the race that we got between Jorge Lorenzo and Marc Marquez um, and Andrea Vizioso for a large part of it, in many ways, the race we were expecting. So we did say last weekend that we were expecting the Austrian Grand Prix to be Marc Marquez versus the Ducatis, and that's kind of what we got. Yeah, that's exactly what we got. It was a, almost a carbon copy of last year, only one extra Ducati thrown in because uh, Lorenzo was still a little bit struggleicious back then. But even then, he, Lorenzo had one of his better rounds of the season in Austria. So, yeah, this we all we've said it before. It is Ducati track on paper, but Marquez has always found a way to to make to make the Honda work around here. And this was another example of that. It was it was obvious in the dry running in the early goings that it was going to be Marquez and the two Ducatis. It played out that way in qualifying and a, a, a razor thin qualifying Marquez on pole by just two thousandths of a second um, over Dovi on the front row. Lorenzo on the front row, only a tenth behind as well in third. Um, so it was always going to be those three that was going to be leading the charge. And that's exactly how the race played out as well. They broke off. Carl Crutchlow was in a very lonely fourth with only Petrucci a few seconds back for company where that was concerned. In front of him, it was those three um, by a country mile and everybody else. And uh, that was the story of your race. So, yeah, a very close qualifying battle, as, as Dre mentioned, between Marquez and Davizio. So the closest since Bianchi and McWilliams at the Saxon Ring in 2003, um, where just two thousandths of a second separated Marquez and Dovi, Dovi two thousandths of a second away from his second pole in a week, having gone 18-odd months without a single pole position. Um, uh, and in the end, the race we got, Dre, it was a fascinating battle between Lorenzo, Marquez, and Davizioso. Davizioso kind of tailed off towards the end um, of the Grand Prix, um, leaving it to Jorge and Mark, the two Spaniards, to fight it out at the front. And mm. it, it was fascinating in, in as much as those who perhaps don't watch MotoGP closely, or those who just even even those that do, would perhaps associate the Ducati with its strengths and the Honda and Marquez with its strengths. Um, and it was funny how last year the battle we had between Davizioso and Marquez saw Davizioso so strong, particularly onto and at the end of straights, and Marquez would be quicker through the faster corners, through particularly through the third sector. This time it appeared as if they'd swapped bikes for the year. Yeah, it was very peculiar. It was that, you know, Marquez was getting excellent drives off turns one and his breaking into turn three was excellent. He was able to comfortably pass um, at the turn three airpin and then launch himself towards turn four in incredible fashion. It's how he got the lead from Dovi on the opening lap. Um, ruthless. It was almost a bit too ruthless because it opened the door for Lorenzo to sweep through and take the lead in the early periods. But that's, that's where Marquez was super strong. Turns... So it turns one and turns three, but then, like, weirdly, 
the Ducatis were really strong on turn six and seven and the run down to turn nine um, up, up back up the hill. That's where Lorenzo speed. was really strong. The corner speed of, of, of you know, Lorenzo has always been really good at corner speed. And Ducati's not, it's not been Ducati's strongest area over the years, but they were able to make that work around here. And that's where Lorenzo was at his strongest. It was the, it was the sectors three and four. It was the long sweeping right-hander back up the hill towards turn nine. And, and and ten, that's where Lorenzo was fast getting the run down the home straight. That's where Lorenzo took the lead on the final lap. So it was very bizarre. It was almost like a role reversal of last year because that's where Marquez was very strong last year. Now he was almost able to uh, to to beat Dovizioso on the final corner last year. This time round, it was the complete opposite. Lorenzo strong on the on the twistier parts of the track, and again the long sweeping right hand, the back up towards nine and. That's where he ultimately won the race. Hmm. It did. It did give us a fascinating insight, as as Austria kind of does. The nature of the track, it does kind of highlight the strengths and weaknesses of bikes, given um, how a lot of the corners are very, very similar. Um, but it kind of brings me on to another point, a bit of a, a bit of a tangent, a bit of an aside, but it is quite a funny one um, for those that might have missed it. But Dre, did you see the uh, fan question that the riders all got in the press conference before the race last Thursday? Where they, were asked oh, I to draw, where they were asked to draw, it oh, it. it's very yes. funny, to draw their ideal circuit layout. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, uh, which, again, kind of let us into which circuits they feel favour them and which fa- they feel favour their bikes. And, of course, Jorge Lorenzo drew one track for 2018, which was essentially just straights and hairpins, and one track for 2019, which was, uh, it looked like Spaghetti Junction. Um, that many corners, <laughs> given they'd be on a Honda next year. Um, Mark Marquez's was essentially like uh, like the dirt tracks that he would race back in Spain. It was essentially a bit of a speedway track with four lefts, um, given how much he like, enjoys left-handers. Um, Valentino Rossi um, was kind of the only one who put like the greatest of thought into it. He kind of incorporated all of his favourite corners from other tracks and made them into one circuit. Um, yeah, he did. Which was amazing how he managed to do that with very little sort of pre pre warning that that question was coming. Um, and uh, yeah, it was fascinating. Davizioso pretty much did the same as Marquez, but had them all right-handers, which I, of course. Very, uh, which I thought was very funny, basically, to negate Mark Marquez's great strength of left-handed bends. Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of what we saw um, in Austria, where you would have expected, as we saw last year, for Mark Marquez through those fast lefts in the third sector to just have the measure of the Ducati. Um, but this time, with Lorenzo as his main adversary, he didn't. It was Lorenzo who was stronger through there. Um, and so often we would see Mark Marquez when he was che- when he was in front of Lorenzo, it was always out of those corners, the two fast lefts and then the fast right, and six, seven, and eight, where Lorenzo would just climb all over the back of the Honda and then drill him into turn nine, the penultimate right-hander. Um, whereas on the final lap, and it was crucial, the tactical battle between the two, that Lorenzo was able to get in front before that point, so that obviously he was ahead by the point he got to his strongest point of the circuit, and Mark Marquez was unable to basically launch the same kind of assault that he launched on Dovi a year ago because he was losing time to Mark, to, to Lorenzo and the Ducati through those corners where he was gaining it last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was interesting as well was the battle between them up into turn three, um, where we saw a few laps earlier where Mark Marquez essentially ran Lorenzo to the edge of the curb and basically forced him to back off. Um, and we thought initially that Mark Marquez had kind of let Lorenzo off the hook at that corner. Uh, mm. where Lorenzo kind of went around the outside of him and powered away. Turns out, when we um, sort of watched it a bit, a little bit closer later on, Mark Marcus kind of lost the front um, he going into that corner, yeah. and he had to essentially get out of it, and that gave uh, Lorenzo the run around the outside. Um, 
and I guess it just goes to show that this circuit, whilst Mark Marquez has ran the Ducatis very, very close in the last two years, just how close to the limit Mark Marquez was having to go to try and beat the Ducatis around this circuit. He essentially went to the limit, and once he reached that limit, he essentially had to back off and settle for second. Yeah, it's, I mean, Marquez, that's the Marquez way nowadays. It's the, you know, he will take a result if he knows he can't get any more, but he had a chance at the win, so why wouldn't he try it? Um, it looked um, to me as if the only way Marquez was going to beat the Ducatis was by doing what he did at Assen and just breaking them. Yeah, that yeah 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 that that's that was the strategy and it and it was working for the first half of the raceway. He it was hundreds of a second per lap. He was quicker, set a few lap records in the process. But then when Dovi started giving Lorenzo the hurry up, Lorenzo's pace was enough to start reeling Marquez back in. Mm. So once Marquez had realised, well, no, I'm not going to break him this way, then it, it would turn into a dogfight, which is the one thing Marquez I think wanted to avoid in this scenario and. It just didn't work out in the end. Like I said, Marquez, he had, he had an opportunity for the win. He tried it, you know, almost crashed, didn't, thankfully, in his case, and was able to take 20 points, just didn't have the legs to beat Lorenzo in the second half of the lap after that. He was never going to win that fight there. He, his, his main chance had gone, but he still, you know, rather that than a crash. And, you know, it opens the door for, you know, the rest of the fuel to close him in a little bit. But, uh, I mean, he's still plus 10 for his championship lead, leaving Austria compared to where he, to when he started it. So he'll gladly take that as a good weekend overall, even if the Ducatis are a bit closer to Valentino now due to, you know, Valley struggles all weekend, which we'll get to in a minute. But, uh, yeah, Marquez, you know, he, like, if, if he, if he, knows he can't get any more he'll settle um but he had an opportunity for the win so he you know he his attitude this time last year was i wasn't going to be able to sleep at night if i didn't have a crack at it and he did have a crack at it just didn't quite work out again yeah yeah he he did go for it at the at the end and i think he simply didn't try and repeat his his move of 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 a year ago and if it's that final call just because he wasn't close enough and he wasn't quick enough on the approach to those two rights to really have a go he would, it would essentially have to be a, an absolute dive bomb that would have probably taken them both out um, if he had a go at that mm-hmm. um, again. Yeah, it was interesting early on where Mark Marquez tried to make that early break, but his lead never really got up beyond a second, did it? It was always sort of that 0.7, no. 0.8 range. Um, and once the Ducatis essentially started working together, Dobby was very clever in that he decided not to try and have a go at Lorenzo. He decided, I'm going to follow him and let him tow me up to the to the, to the leader. And that's exactly what Jorge did in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, it was Lorenzo rather than Dobby that, that took the fight to Marquez and ended up winning the Grand Prix. And it is fascinating how the season has gone, really, for the Ducati riders and the way the, the balance of power has shifted between those two riders. And there was very little between them in Austria. There was only a second between them at the end of the race. So it's not as if Lorenzo completely uh, dominated Dovi. I mean, he was out-qualified by him for a start. Um, mm. But it, it's interesting the way it's gone. They've now won five races of Ducati um, overall, um, which, from brief memory, Dre, that, that matches Mark Marquez's total. Um, yep, this season it doesn't inch. match Honda's because of course we have the Crutchlow win uh, in Argentina to add to that um, but it just kind of exemplifies how Ducati I guess to a certain extent where have they blown it this year is it through mistakes is it through essentially having two number ones within their team because it's clear that over the course of the season that Ducati's done as much winning as the Honda has um, but Ducati have essentially split the split the points two ways, whereas Honda's winning has all been done, Argentina apart, by Marquez. Exactly. I feel like Ducati now probably has the best all-round biking team in the paddock. Like, they have Dovi and Lorenzo, two exceptional riders, a bike that, you know, doesn't have very many bad rounds anymore. Um, 
by the looks of it, um, maybe Philip Island is still a black mark, but we'll have to wait and see how that plays out once we get to that round later on in the season. But by all accounts, they, they've done a really good job of you know, bringing Lorenzo back into play with the, the fuel tank adjustments and you know, adapting the bike to make him seem you know, a bit, bit more comfortable before telling him to piss off. Mm. Um, but but, but um, no, the, the, what's done what's done it in for Ducati has been more the fact that Dovi had a terrible start, was sloppy at the start of the season outside of the Qatar win, and then made two critical you know crashes during the early part of the season, one in Jerez and another one at Le Mans, races both Marquez won with a 50-point swing, and then he, he crashed to Catalunya as well. Um, when he was chasing Marquez for second, he had a silly mistake and binned it at turn five. So... That's where Dovi lost all his points. Lorenzo just had a wretched start to the season in general. Um, you know, pretty sure he DNF'd in Qatar, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, didn't you know, didn't wasn't wasn't anywhere relevant in Argentina. I think he crashed in that one as well. Uh, you know, didn't get didn't score in Jerez. So he he had an awful start. You know, like a start where he was one of the worst full time runners in the field for the first four races. And yeah, Lorenzo's come back since you know, Catalunya and Magello and Ren ridden exceptionally well, as good as anyone in the field so far. He's plus ten on Marquez since yeah, Magello so far. Point if the season started in Magello, Lorenzo would lead the championship at the moment. But that awful, awful start has now rendered him practically useless for this championship. Mm. Um so yeah, the way it's gone, I think Ducati's start was so bad. I think they've given themselves just too much to do. When Marquez has been ultra consistent pretty much all season long, it's the, 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 it looks like the, the horse has already bolted on this one, really. Mm, yeah, it is, and yeah, to, to underline your point, Lorenzo didn't even finish in the top uh, five of a Grand Prix until that win at Mugello. Um That was his first top five finish of the season. He started off with a DNF, as Dre mentioned in Qatar. He crashed, remounted, and finished fifteenth in Argentina. Finished eleventh in, in Texas, and then had the collision with his teammate and Pedrosa um, in Jerez. Um, before his season really started around Le Mans uh, and Mugello time. Davizioso actually had a solid enough start season. I keep forgetting he led the championship to Europe um, after mm-hmm. the third round of the season in Texas because Marquez had hemorrhaged a lot of points in Argentina, um, as we all know. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's since then, um, Davizioso then DNF three of the next four, um, two of which were won by Marquez. Um, and there, there went his championship battle. And... With every race that Jorge Lorenzo wins, inevitably, people point at the decision Ducati have made to cut him at the end of the season. I think it was a decision that was, in the end, kind of mutual. Ducati had made the decision, and I still say even now, for all those hindsight merchants that say Ducati had got this wrong, at the time they made that decision, no one was saying they got it wrong. Um, Because they made that decision before Mugello, at which point Lorenzo's 2018 read like this, DNF 15th, 11th, DNF 6th. Um, and and understandably, Ducati believed that Davizioso was their rider for the future. And I think when you make that decision when you're Ducati, if you're deciding for next year that you're going to have a de facto number one and number two, which they may well have with Davizioso Petrucci, that's all well and good, but your number one will have to deliver. Um, otherwise, it mm-hmm. renders your entire strategy pointless. Um, so the pressure will crank up on Dobby for next year to justify that status within his team as the clear number one and main man within his team um he isn't at the moment because of lorenzo's victory which takes him ahead of him in the championship but it's interesting how lorenzo has now won each grand prix that dobby had won last year um with his three wins coming so far at Mugello, catalonia 
Um, and in Austria, because the next race coming up at Silverstone is another round that Dovi won last year. Um, so we'll see if that pattern continues for Jorge in a week's time. Um, but as far as he goes, it, rather than talk about what it means for Ducati next year, Dre, let's talk about what it means for Lorenzo. Because he's going, of course, into um, Mark Marquez's team alongside him at Honda. Um, now, we don't know how much adjustment it's going to require for him to get used to the Honda having jumped off the Ducati. Um, but surely Jorge Lorenzo, at the very least, a guy who strikes me, for someone who's got such a big ego, he is still a very much a confidence rider. If his confidence isn't there, he's nowhere near the same rider. Um, right. So for him to beat the rider that he's essentially going to be going to his team next year in a straight fight at the final corner like this, that can only help Jorge's mental psyche going into next season. Well, yeah, he's beating Mark Marquez, and that's the guy you've now got to beat in this championship. I mean, let's be honest with each other here. Marquez is probably going to win his fifth top flight world title in six years mm. um, at, at, by, by the time we get to November. And like, even Lorenzo himself said, like, beating Marquez is special. Like, Lorenzo, for all the ego and for all the talk he comes out with, which is plentiful, um, given the, the politics of bike racing a lot of the time, he has a lot of respect for Marquez as a rider. He's always had a lot of respect for Marquez as a rider. Well, maybe besides that third race in her ref. But um, since then, at least, he's always had a lot of respect for Marquez. And, like, the fact that they're sending each other love emojis on Instagram kind of suggests that, you know, I think they're going to get along quite well It's Honda. I think I think, I think they've buried uh, any previous hatchets that have came before it. But in any case, Lorenzo, he's an ego guy. He's a confidence guy. He's always got a very high opinion of, his, of, of himself. And if he's beating Marquez, um, and he has done on, on two or three occasions this year already, then yeah, he's a confidence guy, and he'll 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 take that as a positive step going towards Honda. The question is going to be adapting to the Honda itself. We all know that Honda is a challenge. Um, it's a Although challenge I think for Mark any... Marquez's performance in Austria proved that it's not quite the challenge it once was. No, I don't think it is. I think it's generally an easier bike to ride than in years past. Um, I think the bike is a bit more manageable. Hopefully that will only help Lorenzo in the long run. Whether Marquez still has his mystifying speed, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, Pui has to now make a decision as to how, well, how, where, is, where is he going to point this team? Is he going to point it more in the development of Marquez or Lorenzo, who, you know, Marquez and Lorenzo are both brilliant, but they also both fundamentally have very different driving or riding styles. So they're going to have a bit of a... He has to make a call on that because I guess there's a theory that if he decides to go down Ducati's route and back both riders um, all the way and essentially give them both every chance of challenging for a championship, which he kind of has to do. Um, You you can't sign Lorenzo and essentially give him a number two spot, but is there a risk that Honda will essentially inherit Ducati's problem of having two riders that just split the points up? Well... If Marquez is that good, and in the Manufacturers' Championship you only score off your lead bike, there's less of a need to have two number ones. Like that—that's just—that's just a fact. Like it's not like in. That's the problem. Like, like that's the problem a rider is going to have, and that's the politics they're going to have to. They're going to have to decide between themselves. Do you want to go to a Honda team where you know Marquez is going to get the lion's share of the development and how the bike is developed? that could be problematic. Um, and Honda's not been in this scenario for five years because that's how long Marquez has been with them now. This is his sixth season with the team. And Pedrosa, until 
Puig within the team was a reliable number two with experience who could clean up a lot of Marquez's mess on occasions. Now they've got the best team, arguably in GP history, coming up next year. It's certainly in the conversation. You know, you've only got a minor, you know, eleven world championships between them. Um, but twelve by the time next year starts. Exactly. So. I don't know. It's it's a good problem to have, but also a bad problem to have because, like, if you're Puig and you're and you're solely focusing on the team, then yeah, having two number ones can't hurt. And um, but like I said, it's not like in Formula One when in the constructors' championships both cars count. It doesn't it doesn't apply like that in MotoGP. Only the lead bike scores points, and it's a factory um, rather than just a team. Um, and the team's championship is not, I think, I don't think it's got the same level of prestige in MotoGP as it does the individual award. Um, not like in Formula One, where the constructors is arguably more valuable than the driver's title. Yeah, the the, fa- the, team the is factory really is very much value the manufacturer's championship, but I don't think the team's championship is particularly highly coveted. No. It's highly coveted by the team that ultimately wins it. Uh, of course. Because, because they can put it in their press releases and put it on their uh, it's website. The, it's the Carabao and, Cup. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is a little bit, yeah, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, don't call it the JP Justin Pate trophy. It's not quite that bad. Um, no, but um, but yeah, you're, you're right, and and yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how that dynamic you know pans out next year. And I guess it will all depend on how competitive Lorenzo is. If if Lorenzo struggles early on to adjust that bike, that kind of in a way um, takes care of that problem. The Marquez, by definition, there will become the number one because he'll be the one that's comfortable on the bike. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I am interested and intrigued to see how it will go next season if Davizioso rediscovers that consistency and puts the mistakes of the early spring of this year behind him and is much more like his 2017 self consistently or if Yamaha get their house in order and, and Rossi and or Vinales are towards the front again um, doing it on a consistent basis Honda might essentially find themselves in a position where both of their riders are taking turns essentially leading the team on a, any given weekend and neither is actually scoring the lion's share of the points which is essentially what's helped Mark Marquez out to a great great extent this year where with every race we go to seemingly Mark Marquez has a different threat um, but Mark mm-hmm. Marquez is the constant he's the guy that's always up the front um, whereas I mean you know takes some of the races this season where he won at Jerez and it was Zarco that finished second to him um, you know we saw at uh, Le Mans it was Petrucci that was second to him we saw at Saxering it was Rossi at Assen it was Rins um, you know every race we go to seemingly there is a different rider who is the nearest challenger to Mark Marquez which explains mm-hmm. part of the reason why he's in this strong position now as a 59 point championship lead and uh, he has no consistent this, number two he has no consistent number two and we have only eight races to go for anyone to try and narrow that gap and purely Dre, Mark Marquez is showing absolutely no signs of that lead uh, wilting. He's had the two aberrations this season in Argentina and Mugello. Every other race he's finished, he's been on the podium and there's no beating that, is there? No. It's very, very hard to beat. When you've got the the ability to combine getting five, six wins, which is really all you really need to win a championship. If you can get to five wins, you've got a really good chance of winning the title if you're consistent. And the fact he's he's just not making the mistakes he used to make in years past. See, like he now knows where the line is most of the time. He's, he's, take last he's weekend's here. ride as well, where, hmm. I mean, it, it might not strike anyone as a great Mark Marquez ride he finished second and he still hasn't won Austria, but you look at the race result last Sunday and look at where every other bike not called the Ducati finished. Yeah. 
Kind of says it all, really. Um, like Marquez is just ultra consistent now. He's not making these errors he used to make. And if he keeps it upright, he's finishing on the podium now because there's not very many guys on any given track who can beat him at any given weekend. It's as simple as that. It might be, it might be one dude who can challenge him on a weekend. And even if he beats him, he's not doing it for the next four rounds to, to consistently take points out of Marquez. No one in the field is doing that. Dovi, Lorenzo, Rossi, Crutchlow, they've all been the guys that have been fighting to take minor points out of him. Um, even Maverick Vinales and Johan Zarco in the earlier parts of the season, um, when they were the guys that were picking up the, the, the higher finishes almost by proxy due to all the mistakes other guys were making. So, like, that, that first half of the season where every major contender had made critical errors but didn't have the wins to back up what Marquez was doing... Um, that's gift wrap Marquez this year's title, I reckon. So, you know, there's a little bit of hope left. Um, and again, 59 points is a, is a long, long way back for Valentino and a guy who has not won a race since the middle of last year. And the Ducatis are strong, but they're going to take points off each other, most likely given how equally competitive they both are. Lorenzo and Dovi are now only a point apart in the championship, and they've now you know, split their five wins almost equally between them. So you're not going to win a championship doing that. It's an almost identical scenario to Yamaha a couple of years ago when it was Lorenzo and Rossi. They were both taking points out of each other. And the races Marquez was winning, it did double the damage because the other two guys were, were, were scrapping with themselves. So that's how he ended up winning the title in, in Mategi so early the year before. So... Yeah, it's it's not an ideal scenario for anyone else chasing because they're all beating each other up while Marcus keeps his head above water. Yeah, and just to underline what we what we saw from Mark Marcus, just how good he was last weekend in Austria. Um, because he took pole position, which stunned us all really for him to take the pole position um at such a Ducati favoured track. The other top four positions on the grid were all Ducati riders, Davizioso, Lorenzo, Petrucci, first time in ages. Um, I think one of the first times ever, I think, Keith Ewan said that three Ducatis are qualified in the top four for a Grand Prix in the Premier Class. Um, Mark wow. Marquez was six-tenths of a second quicker in qualifying than the next best rider not on a Ducati, which was Cal Crutchlow in fifth. Um, six-tenths clear. And then in the, race, in the race, Mark Marquez finished second. Cal Crutchlow, who finished fourth on the next Honda, was nine seconds back down the road. Um, and yeah. and then the first of the Yamahas was 13 seconds back, and Pedroza, Marquez's teammate, was 14 seconds back. Um, which mm-hmm. just, that just puts into perspective what Mark Marquez did last weekend. He may have given them a, a great run in the race, and he might have beat them in qualifying, but don't let anyone believe that's not still a Ducati track, uh, the Red Bull ring. It is, exactly. as, it is as clear a Ducati track as you'll find anywhere on the calendar, and Mark Marquez still nearly beat them. Um, to mm-hmm. victory, uh, which just tells you how good this guy is uh, at the moment. He is, he is quite clearly the best rider um, on the planet. And last year, the guy who ran him closest, of course, was Davizioso for the championship because he beat him here um, in Austria a year ago. Unable to do it this time. He was unable to keep pace in the end with the top two. And uh, it was a curious one, wasn't it, Dre? Because it, it wasn't really a race that we expected tyre management or tyre wear to be an issue. Um, but mm. it kind of makes you think that Dovi thought it was because rather than running the soft front, soft rear, Dovi went a step harder and paid for it. Exactly. He 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 had to override the bike to try and pass Lorenzo, and that's what led to the critical error in turn one, which put him out of contention. And Dovi himself admitted that, um, yeah, he he got the tire choice wrong, and 
Lorenzo is now no longer a step behind Ovi. If you're running medium-medium, Lorenzo can make soft-soft work to the end of the Grand Prix. You're always going to be half a step behind. And that's exactly what happened here. Like, Dovi had to go over the limit to try and pass Lorenzo, and he paid the penalty. And he ended up finishing a second and a half back off the front two by the time they went over the line themselves. Dovi just did not have the overall pace and, and to, uh, enough pace difference to put himself ahead of Lorenzo, and it cost him dearly in this one. And, you know... It's not the end of the world because Marquez was second, but he's lost nine points to his teammate, which now means Lorenzo's ahead of him in the championship, which is kind of awkward given all the Dovi chance we had last week. Yeah. You know, oh, Dovi's the Iceman. You know, it's Dovi's team. And then a week later, oh, wait, Lorenzo's now on top. And then now you're getting all these video leaks about him partying in the back with, with you know, with, with all the you know, Luigi Delinia and all the Ducati yeah. boys in there. And it's like, it's like, Oh, the tides have turned quickly here. Um, and yeah, remember, this is a guy that's leaving the team at the end of the season. Uh, isn't that a force? But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a weird predicament there where Dovi just seemingly was a bit too conservative on this one. And the guy who's often known for time management and intelligence and being a real rider's rider got it wrong and it cost him a good chunk of points. Mm, it did. And I think that's really the important thing now. He lost nine points to Lorenzo and that's really the, the crucial story now looking into the second half of the season, not so much who's going to finish top Ducati, but it's probably going to be between those two and Valentino for second in the championship by the time we get to Valencia. Mm -hmm. uh, with the way this season's kind of unfolding now, with Vinales fading badly out of contention in that top six, Zarco has fell out of there slightly. It looks like it's between those three now to finish as championship runner-up um, in the second half of the season. So to lose nine points to Lorenzo is is a big hit for Dovi. Um Behind them, we had two riders who had rather lonely races, Cal Crutchlow in fourth and Daniel Petrucci in fifth. Um, rides which, given, I mean, particularly Cal Crutchlow, Dre, the way his season's gone, I mean, we forget that see, people were being so high on this guy when he won um, in Argentina. I think unfairly so. People were starting to talk about, oh, can Cal Crutchlow win the championship? Uh, which I think was oh, always a very, un a very unfair expectation to put on him. Don't um, doubt me! Don't <laughs> doubt him. Um, but since then, it's it's not exactly been the greatest of seasons for him. He's had three DNFs, um, and he's not been on the podium since. But this was his best result, his equal best result um, since that win in Argentina. And um, he is quite clearly, given Danny Pedrosa's travails this season, he is the only rider on a Honda able to hold a candle to Mark Marquez. And you can argue he didn't really do that um, in Austria. But still, around a circuit that notably favours Ducatis, I guess his benchmark, his reference point was the likes of Petrucci and, and Cal beat him comfortably. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like you're not going to beat Marquez head to head now on 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 the average round, and you know the the front three was in another league this weekend. So this was always, I think, going to be the maximum possible result that this team could manage. And um, yeah, like Crutcho did the best he could. It was a solid fourth place, given this is a guy who absolutely detests this place. Mm. If you listen to any of his interviews, he hates it here. Um, so the fact that, you know, he, he, he brought it home in a, in a, in a solid fourth place, um, didn't make any mistakes, just rode his race, you know, and was comfortably... Um, in in P in P four in the end and the best of the rest that's about as good as he could ask for and I don't think Cowell's too disappointed by that. Um, given his reaction in the paddock, he was very he was, he was very happy about the whole thing and yeah, like I said, he couldn't have asked for much more on that one really. So 
Yeah, a good result for Cal. Um, again, sometimes Cal is inconsistent, so just the fact he had a consistent race with no real errors on our track, he doesn't like, that's, a, that's a very good result. He, could, he literally couldn't have asked for anything more there. So, yeah, good job by Cal. Mm, and, and actually, a good job by Petrucci, the more and more I think about it and the deeper I look into it. I mean, there's a very close battle forming now for 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th in the championship. There's 10 points covering four riders, those four riders being Vinales 5th, Petrucci 6th, Zarco 7th and Crutchlow 8th. Um, and Daniel Petrucci, having a very good season, he's now had one, two, three, four, five, six top six finishes, including a second, which is his equal career best, of course, back at Le Mans um, early this year. Um, but of course, this is a guy who's going into the factory team next season. He's looking very good. And what's really striking me about Petrucci, which might say more about his teammate, really, but in the last four or five races, Dre, have you noticed the yawning chasm that's grown between Petrucci and Miller? Yeah, Miller is starting to struggle. Like I, I have noticed that. That yeah, as it stands right now, Petrucci's starting to stand out a, a bit more in the championship, and Miller seems to be struggling. I don't know if that's a development issue. I mean, they're not going to make any more parts for a GP17 anymore. They're going to give parts on the GP18 current bike, which is what you know Petrucci's on right now. I don't know if it's entirely this race last year. Exactly, and it certainly didn't this year. Um, a very bizarre set of circumstances there. I mean, looking at the numbers now, Jack Miller was 18 from 34 seconds off the victory, and he was 21 behind his teammate. Now, I don't think the GP18 is that much faster than last year's bike, where it's you know, um, you know, almost half a second a lap faster. Um, it's very, very peculiar. I mean, Miller in general, his last six rounds, retirement, retirement. 10th, 14th, 12th, 18th. Hmm. And we had Bautista and Rabat on GP17s in 10th and 11th. Yeah, I don't know if Miller's got maybe some sort of niggling injury he's not telling us about or something like that. Maybe he got dinged up at Bruno and we didn't know about it um, because he was was one of those guys that narrowly dodged that incident, but you know, might have taken a ding there somewhere. Who knows? But yeah, very peculiar that uh, Miller has, you know, had, you know, he started out magnificently the season. He had three rides in the top six, two fourth places in Le Mans and, and Argentina on, on last year's GP17. But ever since the two crashes at Mugello and Catalonia, he struggled and he's dropped down to 12th in the championship now. Pedrosa has overtaken him now. Um, and he's got guys like Bautista and Rabat who have been a bit more, in, in, you know, a bit more struggly and not that don't quite have the resources that the Pramac team do. They're right behind him in the championship now, especially Bautista's only f- minus four off him now. So it's it's a bit weird that Miller's fallen off the wagon a little bit there. Mm-hmm. And bit it's, bizarre. Yeah, it is bizarre, and he's yeah. I think there's a there's a large element of Miller's performances have tailed off rather than any kind of improvement from Petrucci. But Petrucci's consistency and constantly trading around that fifth six seventh eighth area um deserves mentioning whereas miller appears now to be trading in sort of top 10 at best results and miller qualify i think all of it is miller's qualifying at the moment miller was only 17th on the grid in austria um last weekend and you know the only ducatis behind him on the grid were simeon and abraham um in the end and xavier simeon was only six hundredths of a second behind miller himself he nearly out qualified him um, right so so miller definitely having a bit of a problematic run at the moment and without kind of veering too much off what's happening in austria jack miller you would assume will get the gp18 oh sorry the gp19 next year and um banyaya his teammate coming in next year will have the 18 but mm-hmm. miller won't want these kind of performances to keep going for too much longer because you'll you won't be surprised if Pramat look at this and think well 
how much longer do we give this guy the newer bike? Particularly if Banyaya comes in and starts, starts matching Miller. So it is an interesting story there if Miller can you know, improve quickly rather than keep this rather poor run of results going on um, at the moment. Jack Miller actually started the Grand Prix very, very closely to the guy we're going to talk about next, which is Valentino Rossi, um, who failed to get out of qualifying one for the first time, I believe, since Barcelona last year. Um, mm -hmm. which was one of those races where the Yamaha just struggled for grip on a low-grip track, and uh, both Yamahas ended up in Q1. Maverick got out of it, Valentino didn't. Um, and Valentino didn't get out of Q1 this time either. He was out-qualified, he was beaten into Q2 by Bautista and Rins, um, and he was also out-qualified by Bradley Smith on the KTM. Um, Brad has got 13th Yeesh. on the grid and was only 15,000 off getting himself into Q2 um, and beat Valentino Rossi um, on the same track in the same session. Um, now, as far as his race goes, um, sometimes I feel, and this is taking nothing away from Valentino, but sometimes I think riders are more prone to stand out when they qualify badly and finish quite high up. Um, mm. you know, they're, they're obviously going to stand out because they've made great progress from where they started. But even taking that into account, Dre, um, we're, we're going to talk later on about a rider who quite literally used the words polishing a shit. Um, in the form of Scott Redding, but that's kind of what Valentino Rossi did. Yeah, the phrase I have to use was diamond encrusted turd. Um, and that's, yeah, a bit how Rossi rode this performance. It was, again, the Yamaha was really struggling for ultimate pace in qualifying. It qualified. had no right I mean, to finish sixth. No, it had no right to finish sixth whatsoever. The field is too stacked for that now, quite frankly, but Valentino once again is, is getting for at least from what i'm seeing the the really the the maximum of what's on the table right now that that yamaha had no business being that high up the field and he's passed some genuinely really fast guys like pedrosa like rins like johan zarko um like like he's he's finishing ahead of some really really good riders in there who again are capable of top six performances on their day uh and if, if not better and yeah valentino rossi on a yamaha that has no business being this high up round here went from 14th to 6th and you know he earned it he, he passed everybody he needed a pass there was no real shenanigans up the front no one was no real attrition um in this was only one retirement and that was xavier Simeon crashing everybody everybody else saw the checkered flag um, so yeah, I mean, that was a magnificent performance, Rossi, probably the, the strongest overall, um, performance of the year for me from him. I think he was very impressive, um, and got really, he could do no more on that Yamaha. Nobody else came close to him on the day and rightly so. He was yeah, fantastic. He, he continues essentially to carry that team on his back at the moment. Um, this season, although we don't want to, we're not going to talk about Yamaha's ongoing problems too um, deeply this week so we talked about them a lot last week with Maverick's problems um, but we have to mention what we saw after qualifying on Saturday Dre where I don't think I've seen and many people have said the same I can't remember ever seeing a scene like this where Yamaha were getting ready for their post qualifying debriefs in the team hospitality and we had the incredible scene of Lynn Jarvis and some of Yamaha's big hitters essentially in front of the world's media giving a public apology to its riders um, what the hell is going on there? Um, if ever an image exemplified how a team has fucked up, that was it. 
Yeah, it's like Yamaha basically just took full responsibility for their season, effectively, because that I've, I, me and you've both been watching bike racing for the best part of twenty years. We've never seen that. I don't think I've ever seen that before, where a team boss or a team manager is apologising to his riders in front of the world's media for their bike not being good enough, and then you know the commitment that the team is apparently working around the clock trying to fix these problems. As you mentioned to you in the, in the pre-show before we went on the air. Like Yamaha had one of their World Superbikes electronic guys at at the track at the weekend trying to figure out the problem here, and even Valentino admitted, "Okay, it's not just the electronics here. It's clearly more to it. The engine is struggling as well, which is an even worse problem because the engines are are, are homologated and they can't they can't adjust them until." Qatar next season. So yeah, they're essentially the, the in engine... the same predicament that Suzuki were in last year, where they got their engine badly wrong pre-season and once you homologate it, you're stuck with it for the season unless you're a team like Suzuki are this season who can run concessions and update it. Um, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, Yamaha's engine is essentially similar. Think of it as the kind of problem that Honda had a couple of years ago, particularly in 2015 when they lost the championship, the only championship that Marc Marquez hasn't won, um, where their engine was just way too aggressive and they're basically their bike and the electronics couldn't tame it. Um, and that's kind of where Yamaha are at this season, where clearly they appear to have gone for more power with their bike to try and co- uh, combat the Ducatis and the Hondas on the straights. And it's clearly messed their machine up. It's got the, you know, it's created all the problems that they just haven't been able to work around. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, Valentino Rossi, to his great credit, is getting his head down, keeping his head and getting the results in. Uh, and he remains second in the championship. Um, but Yamaha remain a solid third in the Manufacturers' Championship. They're nowhere near uh, Ducati and Honda. Ducati have won five races this season. Honda have won six. Yamaha have won none. Um, and they continue to struggle uh, in the other half of the garage with Maverick Vinales, who finished down in 12th last weekend, 23 seconds behind the winner. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what kind of uh, just underlined the state that Yamaha are in and perhaps what has happened in MotoGP over the last three or four years um, and it was in David Emmett's brilliant post-race weekend roundups that he does every after every Grand Prix weekend on motomatters.com uh, where he compared the race winning times of previous years and I haven't got the numbers in front of me but from, from memory the race winning times from 2015 where of course Ducati won with Yanone to now the, Yam- the Ducati and Honda race winning times have noticeably got quicker um, mm. they've, I think they've gained sort of 10-15 seconds from that, that first year when we came to Austria um, of course Yamaha let's not forget were third and fourth in that first year and I think they were what sixth and seventh last year uh, with mm-hmm. Maverick and Valentino their race finishing times in, in the form of Rossi was essentially the same race time that they did here two years ago and I think that's kind of where most GP is at now isn't it Dre where Honda and Ducati have noticeably progressed in the last two and three years Whereas Yamaha have essentially stayed still. And when you stay still in motorsport, you go backwards. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. You stay still, you're going backwards. And it's it's never a good Simon Valentino Rossi after the race admitted, we're aiming for fourth. Um, they know that and that's almost an admittance to me that the Ducatis are going to overtake him, which is which I think is probably going to happen by season's end. The aim now is to finish fourth ahead of his teammate, um, Maverick, and who's only eight points but in front of the top independent, um, Danilo Petrucci, um, who's on 105 points and has you know finished all but one race this year. Um, 
so they're really struggling. And again, I can't believe they had to apologize as a team in public this past weekend. But yeah, as you say, they've not developed that bike for that circuit at all. Um, it's the, it's like in terms of pure race pace, it's the exact same bike that it was you know, two years ago. And that is an alarming sign for a factory of that many resources, especially when Honda have made significant gains to fix their problems with Marquez at the front. Um, and Ducati, who have now turned themselves into probably the best all-round factory in the field in terms of not just the, their factory team, but the satellites believe them are well, the most consistently well-placed satellite versatile machine out there for guys like Rabat, Bautista, Petrucci, Miller, etc. So Yamaha are a team that's going backwards right now and they need to figure this out over the off season because if it's engine related you're not going to be you're not going to be fixing that until the off season. Um if and the electronics are still a problem that keeps cropping up with this team. So they have fundamental problems that they can't fix. It's like we're going back to Honda in 2015 all over again. It's it's very, very bizarre. And there, there doesn't seem to be a solution on the horizon anytime soon. Yeah, just to give you the numbers from um, David Emmett's piece, which I've now found, monomatters.com, to, to read it. Um, Andre Inoni, who won the race in 2016, did it in a time of 39 minutes, 46 seconds. Um, they were then three seconds quicker with Davizioso winning last year and then a further three seconds quicker again this year with Lorenzo's winning time of 39 minutes, 40 seconds. Yamaha's times look like this. Rossi finished fourth in 2016 at 39.50. Last year, Zarco was the top Yamaha at 39.50. And then this year, Rossi from 14th on the grid, let's not forget, was in finished in 39.54, four seconds slower um, than last year and obviously the year before. So that just explains where the gap has just gradually grown and grown and grown between the the strongest bikes, of which the Yamaha no longer is, uh, and the Yamaha itself, they're they're in a bit of a bit of a hole at the moment as a factory, and it doesn't look as if the uh, the solution to these problems is going to come until next year, uh, and that's next year at the earliest. Um, let's talk about one other factory though, who are having problems at the moment, and it's a factory we don't often talk about on this show because they're pretty much in the background of MotoGP these days. They are last in the Manufacturers Championship. That is Aprilia. Um, but we've got a very good reason to talk about them this week, and I'm, a, I'm afraid, Aprilia fans, if there are any of you, uh, it's not for positive reasons. It's because your British rider called your bike a piece of shit um, last weekend. Um, now, um, we will bring you the exact quotes in a moment, but <laughs> Scott Redding essentially, Dre, um, in this interview, which uh, we'll read you some of the quotes out very, very shortly, has kind of poured his heart out, and it gives us an insight into life as a MotoGP rider, I suppose, at the back of the grid these days, where not, I don't think anyone can ever question that Scott Redding doesn't put his heart and soul into MotoGP. I know he has this persona where he's a bit marmite, you either love him or you hate him, largely because of his social media interactions. Um, yeah, a, a lot of female fans understandably love him. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously there are those who, who don't like what he does. Um, but he clearly puts his heart and soul into it. And this appeared to me last weekend in Spielberg as if this was a rider who has gone through a lot of tough experiences over the last couple of years where his very position in the sport has been in question and in doubt at times. Um, you know, there was times when we didn't think he'd be on the grid this year because he found a ride with Aprilia. Um, and he certainly looks as if he's not going to be on the MotoGP grid next year. Um, and this looks like a rider who's quite simply reached the end of his tether. Yeah, um... I'll give Scott Redding this. I've never, I've never been a fan per se, 
but I have never questioned his passion and commitment to the sport. I, I remember in his, his Moto2 title fight back in 2013, um, you know, just how much, just how desperate he was to try and get back on the bike after he had that awful accident at Philip Harden, which would probably cost him the championship um, that year. And I, 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 the guy's always been passionate. The guy wears his heart on his sleeve. He's a very emotional, very outspoken guy. Um, he spoke out. I remember the, the weekend Louis Salon passed away, and I remember him talking a lot about the safety features and you know not you know not liking where that was going and how Austria was dangerous. He was the first guy really to call Austria dangerous before it was even cool when it was like raining last year. Remember the one of the most vocal guys against it was was Scott Redding. So he's outspoken and he's passionate about the sport and he's passionate about competition and. Yeah, he he let rip on the Prilia after the race this weekend. And of course, there is a level of professionalism that you have to undertake as a bike rider. And I'm sure many of the Prilia's employees are trying their absolute best to get the maximum out of it. And I'm I'm sure any nuanced fan would understand that. Mm. But at the same time, Redden is the guy that's trying to make this go. He's an, he's a, he's a world-class bike rider and a guy that, you know, could easily have been a world champion in an alternate universe. He's a very talented rider and he deserves a bike that is capable of at least giving the chance to perform. Like in the compared to his teammate, Redding is not is only five points behind Alicia Spagaro this season. So for all the talk about Redding being terrible and not having his place on the grid, like a prettier is a bike right now is so unreliable and so inconsistent that you can't really read into the scoreboard because it's almost irrelevant mm. when the bike is not performing so well. And yeah, you're essentially you scoring your points on days where other teams screw up. Um, exactly. Alessio Spargaro, he scored. He had a tenth in America this year. He had a ninth at the Mon, which was a race where we saw a lot of riders crash out. Um, that's a race where Scott Redding was amongst those um, to crash out, so he didn't score points that day. Um, Aleish also had a 13th at Assen uh, and a 15th took the final point at Bruno. Scott Redding's point scores so far this season have come in the form of a 12th in Argentina, a 15th at Jerez, uh, and then three consecutive point scores of 12th in Barcelona, um, 14th at Assen, and 15th at the Saxon Ring. He's then had a DNF and a 20th since then, the 20th coming in Austria last weekend. And We'll give you bring you some of his comments now. Now Scott Redding has apologised since for these comments, and I, I think he's probably apologising for the way he's phrased them because I think the actual sentiment I can understand where he's coming from. Uh, where the, obviously the headline quote was, "You cannot make a piece of shit shine," uh, and that's what I'm trying to do. Um, that was obviously the the comment that made the headlines. Uh, but when you read a lot more deeply into it, I think you the more and more you read, I don't know about you, Dre, the more and more you read, the more sympathy you have for Scott. Um, mm. with, with what he's saying, where he says, um, you know, it's been hard. It's been a hard weekend. And to be honest, to have a race like that is heartbreaking because I try all the time and it doesn't get easier. Why can I go to Assen and battle with my teammate in Bruno? I can battle with my teammate. Yes, I crashed. Then I come here and I can't even fucking be in the same situation. Uh, every time I go on the bike, every fucking day is different. There's a problem, always a problem with something. 
Every weekend there is a problem and I've just tried to accept it and I've just tried to deal with it. But honestly, it's a bit of a disaster at the moment and I'm not happy. This weekend was a reality check for me. Riding around there, it hurts. So now I have to go to Silverstone, the next race. I need to smile in front of everyone and say I'm going to do a good performance and it's all bullshit because you can't do anything. You cannot make a piece of shit shine and that's what I'm trying to do. I know it sounds harsh and I shouldn't say it, but that's what it is. You're trying to make something average be better. I just hope that when we go testing next week at Bazano, that's a test that's taking place this week, weekend that we can find something we have a new engine what is it going to bring um he goes on to say it's something that i've asked for five races ago it's if not more i hope that it's better i do hope but if it continues like this i don't know what mindset i'm going to be in because this is not what i go racing for i don't do it he says the guys are trying but it's just a bit of a joke there are so many things that i'm just not even allowed to say not against me but in a team of this level should not be happening and it is happening and i accept it um he says we found out yesterday night referring to uh saturday practice that there was a problem with the sensor this this and this the suspension is readings different to what it is doing fucking hell this is motor gp a full factory team why is this happening i have had problems with the electronics all the weekend cannot get it to work so what hope do i have to make a result here i can't and that's the thing that is making it hard at the moment um referring to the test at mizano he said to be honest even that's a fucking joke we were supposed to do three days then it was two days then something was not organized enough and now we have one day things like that you know we need that test time we need those things so it's a joke um and when asked if clear the air talks with aprilia would help ahead of his home grand prix at Silvers, and he says that he's tried i've tried already from round one and I was in a bad place earlier this year, and I said to everyone that I'm not happy. I need to move on, forget it, and let it be. And I was doing that. But then when you realize how good you can be, and you can't do it again, and it's holding you back, and it's holding you back, that's what's so frustrating. Uh, I had the same in qualifying on Saturday to go in FP4 with the medium tire. I go in the qualifying with the soft, and I go slower. And I have problems that I haven't had all weekend. I go into the race, and I have problems again that I haven't had all weekend. Why? Is the bike that bad that it changed from three degrees? I don't know, but you can never find the rhythm. I'm honestly better off doing FP1, warm-up, and the race. The rest of it, just forget it, and I would do the same result because it doesn't matter what you do. Um, he continues and continues and continues and references problems that he's had in previous races. Um, it's a rider pouring his heart out, Dre, over the mm. problems that he's experiencing behind the scenes that he just hasn't really gone public with before. Um, and... <laughs> We can speak up until the cows come home about riders that we feel perhaps could do a better job and riders that are underperforming. Um, but ultimately, in Scott Redding's defence, and you can argue in Sam Lowe's defence, if we go back to last year, surely the very least a rider deserves is the raw materials to go out there and do the best he can on any given day. Um, right. And, and as you say... And you're quite right to point out that I'm sure these guys at Aprilia are trying their utmost to do the best job they can. Um, but surely at this level of motorsport, at World Championship, the pinnacle of two-wheeled motorsport, you expect a certain level of competence and ability. Um, and essentially, Scott Redding's the guy that's going out there and risking his life on the motorcycle and trying to put his heart out into you know, getting points and getting a result and trying to sustain his career in this sport, which at the moment is in question. Um and it appears at the moment for Scott Redding and Alicia Spargo, of course, his teammate, that they are not being provided with that minimum raw materials that any rider should expect. 
Yeah, Sam Lowe's made a lot of the same complaints last year that were so bad. Even his teammate, Alicia Spagaro, came in to defend him and, you know, praised him for being professional and handling the situation with, with you know, as as, as best as he possibly could. Um, the guy, a guy that, had, you know, had pretty much known he'd lost his job from round six and was replaced by round eight in Germany by Scott Redding, who's come in and has struggled just as much, if not more. Um of course, as I mentioned, I know a pretty. I know they've got a lot of people in there who I know are trying their absolute best to 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 make that bike rideable and give it the best chance to perform. But that's just it. They they have not given Scott Redding or Alicia Spagaro the chance to perform at their absolute best. And you know, it it pains me to see Alicia Spagaro, a, a guy who was the king of the CRT rules and a guy that was an excellent factory rider for Suzuki in 18th in the championship right now behind two rookies. Rookies! And again, no disrespect, no disrespect to Fee Siren and Franco Morbidelli, but Alicia Spagaro is a quality bike rider, and he should be a lot higher up the board than this. Same for Scott Redding, who I know has performed well in the past in MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, his best season was he was with a production Honda back, into, back, back when he debuted in 2014. I know Redding is capable of good results. He had a very good rookie season, I, I remember to this day. He even had a podium when he was at Mark VDS at Misano that year. He's capable of, of exceptional rights. If the factory is not giving him the best possible chance to compete, then the team needs to be held accountable for their mistakes. And this is a, a paddock right now where Yamaha's apologizing. I can't remember a pretty sure as hell aren't. And I know a, a lot of it is down to a pretty themselves, not the Grassini part of the garage, who I know are a competent, you know, a competent unit who know how to build a decent bike and to give riders opportunities to perform very well. Because it was, um, it was the prettier side of the team that wanted to sack Sam Lowe's last year, not Grassini. Grassini ran Lowe's in Moto Two and gave him the opportunity. Yeah, and they knew he was the race winner in Moto Two and was a title contender. Lowe's high risk, but high reward for sure. Um, and they sacked him for Redding, and Redding has struggled. And at some point, you're going to have to ask the question: like, you've got Alicia Spagaro, you're getting, you somehow managed to get Andrea Iannone for next year, which is a walking miracle given where their team is right now. I mean, the circumstances are very lucky that they've been able to get a rider of his proven quality. But at the same token right now the team's underperforming and they've gone through so many quality riders in the last years let's not forget they had stefan bradle and avara batista in the past as well and marco melandri really struggled with this team before as well so, uh, at some point you've got to point the finger at a prettier and say what the hell is going on here why is it that every rider you run through can't perform on your bike maybe they've got to look at the mirror in themselves and realize something is very badly wrong here and restructure because at the moment this isn't working and and like if you're if one of your main riders is out here calling your bike a piece of shit then something is very badly wrong and it needs to be fixed internally and rather than just dismissing the comments that have been made or you know maybe giving a whisper to scott telling him to apologize for what he said because obviously he clearly upset somebody near your pretty camp um but it's frustrating, and, it, and I, I can understand why any rider, especially one of Scott's quality, is is frustrated at not being able to perform on that level. It's disappointing, and he deserves better than that. Aprilia have been in MotoGP with a full factory team, discount the ART, CRT times, um, since 2012, when they returned to the series, when, of course, they brought Marco Melandri with them alongside Oro Bautista. 
Um, so this is now their sixth season with a factory team back in uh, your know, full factory team in MotoGP again. And can we really say, Dre, that in that period of time that the team has, has progressed? If anything, they've regressed. Um, because in that first, yeah. that, in, in that second season when they round Bradle with Bautista, we saw them towards the end of the season getting regular top 10 results. Um, yeah. And last year, I mean, the first race of last year, Alicia Spargo finished sixth. Uh, and was and was chasing yeah. down Mark Marquez whilst doing it, um, and and this season their best result so far this year is a ninth place that Elise got at Le Mans in a race where attrition gave them that result. They are, mm-hmm. I mean, last year I think they finished it was sixty four points they finished on last season. We're past the halfway point this season. They've only got twenty seven in the manufacturers championship, and they're comfortably fourteen points adrift of KTM in fifth. Um, so they're further away from KTM than they were this time last year. Um, if mm-hmm. anything, this is a team that's regressed, and and you're absolutely right when you, when you say that you know the team needs to be held accountable because when the team continues to change riders as regularly as it has, where we've had Melandri, we've had Bautista, we've had Bradle, we've had Aspargo, we've had Lowe's, we've had Reading, um, the list goes on. Um, that for me is a team that's essentially saying, well, it's the riders' fault that we're not performing. Um, you know, you know, it's not our fault. It's we haven't just cause we haven't got the right rider on the bike. Um, and essentially just passing the buck, whereas mm-hmm. they, they need to look at themselves. And I, I don't think a Yunone jumping on the bike and struggling next season will tell us any more than we already know, but we, we at least know that Yunone is a MotoGP race winner. Um, so if he can't get anything out of that bike, then the team has absolutely nowhere to hide. Um, but for me, that, that time has already passed. Um, and... As I said, where where is this team? Where is this end game? I asked this a, a few weeks ago when they signed Yunone. Um, where is the end game for this team? Because I, I don't think a team with this kind of budget in MotoGP can realistically expect to challenge for wins or championships because they just do not have the budget or financial input to mm-hmm. match Ducati or Honda or Yamaha. They just don't. Um, so is is a pretty as end game to be best of the rest, to be you know fourth, fifth? Or is their main game just to turn up? Because it's clear that their end game isn't just to turn up. Because if it was, they'd be happy with Scott Redding. I don't know, man. Because if you're you're sacking your riders as often as they are and changing up your team lineup, surely you're aiming higher than where you currently are. But the team isn't getting any higher. Yeah, so like, what do you do? What what is that rider change achieving? It's it's not it's not doing anything. It might as well give Reddit another year get better like itself, you know. Yeah, well they should they always should have given Sam yeah. another year, at least from where I'm sitting, but here we are. Mm. Um yeah, I'm I'm in I'm in complete agreement that, you know, they, they need to they, like the issues are not with the, the with the riders, it's with the bike itself. And I think they need to fundamentally stop stop running the RSGP. It's not a good enough bike. It just isn't. They're not going to get up there. They're never going to challenge the front runners with their bike. I mean, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I don't know what their situation is financially, whether they can afford to hmm. design an entirely new prototype or not. But if there's if if they can't realistically run in the points on a regular basis and get into the top 10, they might as well pull out and focus on world superbikes because yeah. like they have to, they're, they're spreading themselves too thin. If they can't get decent results here, at least from where I'm sitting. Yeah, I agree. I, I think if you're a team that is running, you know, sixth place in the manufacturer's championship budget, then surely then, then fine. If that, if that's what your budget is and that's what you're here to do, you're here to, you know, 
try and punch above your weight, kind of do what, kind of do a force India, you know, run a modest budget and try and punch above your weight and get some, you know, standout results with relatively modest equipment and, and, and budget, then fine. Um, but it's clear that even though that appears to be the budget that Aprilia are, are employing and, and, and using, they clearly seem to have aspirations beyond that, beyond what they're actually clearly capable of achieving. And then when they're not achieving it, they're blaming the riders for it. Um, that that's at least the, my reading of it. So Aprilia just need to, I think, they either need to you know reevaluate what they're in MotoGP to do, or if they're if they're not if they if they're just in, in, unwilling to spend the money to try and catch up, then ultimately why are you here? Um, and if you're as I say, if you're if you're here to try and achieve a lot more, then either spend the money to try and get there, or you're in the wrong sport, unfortunately, because you're, you're, all you're ultimately doing is just churning riders out. Um, with Aprilia and then blaming them when it goes wrong. So Aprilia have got a lot of questions to answer and at the moment the answers don't seem to be forthcoming um, with that Aprilia team. So we'll see um, how it progresses from here. Scott Redding, as I mentioned, did apologise later on um, for those comments. Um, and I, I can I could totally understand why he apologised. I think he apologised for the delivery of it and the, the terminology he yeah. used um, rather than his, his actual you know the content of his of his complaint and why he's making that complaint um he went on to instagram to say i am here today to say i owe a huge apology to the pretty racing team and company what i said sunday afternoon post-race interview was not acceptable by a long way i was thinking with a lot of emotion from my heart but i spoke out with rage which every young person of 25 can do very easily uh, myself of age of 25 should be a role model uh, much more mature and composed. The team, company of Aprilia Racing are doing the best they can to improve our MotoGP machine. We have some good items to test this week and I still believe this bike can be competitive. As a team, you work, live, learn all together. So from the bottom of my heart, I deeply say sorry for my outrageous words. That was said. I will learn from this. Um, which which does appear to be very much a, uh, as Dre kind of hinted earlier on, orchestrated by team and rider as you know, we kind of need you to say this, Scott. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. Rather than, I mean, if if I'm Scott Redding and you're you're out of this team at the end of the year, um, what you got to lose, uh, quite frankly, and yeah, I think that's probably exactly. what that's probably what Scott Redding thought when he said it. He thought, well, I've not really got an awful lot to lose now. I'm out of this team. I'm out of MotoGP at the end of the season. I don't know where I'm going to be next year. What have I got to mm-hmm. lose by saying this? Um, and in the end, um, Scott Redding poured his heart out. As I mentioned, he did apologise. Um, in the end, um, let's bring you the outright result then from last weekend from the Red Bull ring. Of course, it was the first victory, um, or third victory, should I say, in, the, in a row in Austria for Ducati. This time it was Jorge Lorenzo. First time he's won uh, at the Red Bull ring, uh, with Marc Marquez remaining winless uh, in Spielberg in second. Andre De Vizioso, poor tyre choice, cost him. He finished third, ahead of Cal Crutchlow and Danilo Petrucci. Uh, Valentino Rossi in sixth, ahead of Danny Pedrosa, Alex Rins, special Suzuki's in eighth, Joan Zarco ninth, and Bautista got Rabat on the final lap for tenth. Uh, Tito finished 11th ahead of Maverick Vidales 12th, less said the better. Uh, Andre Ioni 13th. Bradley Smith, who was KTM's lone rider at their home Grand Prix, uh, nearly got them into Q2, finished 14th uh, for two points. And Takaki Nakagami got the final point narrowly um, at the expense of his fellow rookie, Hafish Siren. Um, championship standings then look like this. Mark Marquez now has a 59-point championship lead uh, over Valentino Rossi in second uh, and we have just eight races to go now so even if Valentino Rossi and Yamaha suddenly do discover a magic bullet that enables them to win uh, Marc Marquez can finish second behind him in every race and still win the title um, 
Jorge Lorenzo is now up to third overall. Um, he's leapfrogged uh, his teammate uh, Andre Vizioso into third. Um, but there is only three. Uh, there's only one point separating them in third and fourth. Maverick Vinales has dropped to fifth now, um, just ahead of Daniel Petrucci, John Zarco, and Cal Crutchlow. Ten points covers those four. Uh, the two Suzuki riders complete the top ten, with Andre Iannone still ahead of Alex Rins um, by 18 points. Rins um, is now level on points um, with Danny Pedrosa. Into Moto 2, and probably the best race of the three, and possibly one of the best races of the season so far. Um, we were very lucky, actually, though, in the end, to get this race because the one of the two riders involved in it um, very nearly got taken out of it altogether before we even got to qualifying because we had a, a dramatic accident at the end of free practice three. Now, practice on Saturday morning had taken place in drying conditions because it had rained earlier in the morning. Um, which obviously had implications in MotoGP. No riders were able to improve in FP3, and the qualifying results uh, were dictated by that. Um, but Miguel Oliveira, Dre, very lucky to escape injury in an accident that was entirely of Ikel Laquona's making uh, when he outbraked himself at the end of the uh, pitch straight into Turn 1 and essentially couldn't go anywhere else but straight up the back of Oliveira's KTM. Um, and... In championships that are fought over such fine margins, I mean, there's only a couple of points separating Oliveira and Bagnaia, and he only led it by a point going in um, to this race. Small instances like that can have huge ramifications for a championship that is so close. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if Oliveira could have easily got an injury right there and then, and if he misses a round or two, um, who knows? Um, and that that could essentially gift wrap the title to, to Banyaya. But that's what happened with Redding a couple of years ago. The, you know, he got caught out by Philip Islands resurfacing, missed two races, and that gift wrap Polar Spagaro the title. Like it was it was over after that one. And it could have been could have been something very similar here. And what is it with with Miguel Oliveira getting hit after a session finishes? It's, it's ridiculous. Twice this, twice this year he's been hit after the bell. It's uh, it's 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 very unlucky, but. Uh, I'm glad the clone immediately went to the KTM garage and apologized profusely to Miguel for the accident. I, um, space. I wanted to strangle him right there and then. Like he, I was surprised he, did, he didn't just uh, get off the seat and start giving him the business. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like again, he, he was professional. He, he held his he held his nerve. Yeah, and the clone again quite rightly apologized for his for his um, hand in that accident. It was obviously, a, I'm sure it was a complete accident on the and on the cloner's mm. part. Just unfortunate that Miguel just happened to be there in front of him. Um, it was a it was a tricky weekend, and it happens unfortunately in in the world of bike racing. But uh, luckily, um, only egos damaged on that one by the looks of it. In the end, and two uh, badly broken KTM's because that was one of the ironies of it is that Lacorno was riding a KTM and he essentially took KTM's factory rider and championship challenger out of uh, of a session and nearly out of the weekend. Um, so um, yeah, I think that was part of Aki Io's uh, annoyance in that he's like, "Hey, you're riding one of our bikes, man. What are you doing?" Um, and he uh, mm-hmm. he piles straight into Miguel at the end of FP3. We saw a similar incident in qualifying as well where. Stephen Odendahl outbraked himself and went straight up the back of uh, Xavi Vieje on the Dynavolt Calyx. 
Um, mm. We only saw the tail end of it, so we didn't quite see what built up to it. It led to one of the um, few entertaining things that happens in a Moto2 qualifying session, which is Keith Ewan and James Tozland arguing. Um, right. along, along with Jake Dixon, um, who made a very good commentary debut in the box for uh, Moto2 mm. qualifying. It's funny how uh, BT Sport have now recognised that these Moto2 qualifying sessions are an absolute disaster in terms of entertainment, so they now bring in extra commentators to go out to spice things up. Um, Why not, right? But, but yeah, we saw uh, we saw Odendal on the NTS go uh, into the back of Vierge, knock him off, and Vierge, as a result of the accident suffered a broken wrist and had to go home for surgery. We don't yet know whether he'll be back next weekend for the British Grand Prix. Um, but he didn't get to start the Austrian Grand Prix, which took one of the key top six contenders out of play. Um, Banyai went on to take pole position quite comfortably in the end. At one point, he was eight tenths clear of the field, which around a place like Austria is an absolute chasm. Um, that gap yep. did later close in the session. We actually saw Oliveira qualify on the front row of the grid for the first time this year. Um, by taking second, um, which set the scene for the race we got on the Sunday. Um, Oliveira led away from what was second on the grid. Uh, Banyaya was instantly delayed, or initially delayed, by Jorge Navarro, who we'll talk about in a bit, who had his best race yet in Moto2. Um, but once Banyaya got through that early traffic and got up to the back of Oliveira, it was essentially a race-long battle between the two championship contenders, nose to tail, Andre. The race that we got between the two of them just underlined why these two are the best in the world at this level. It was a MotoGP caliber battle. Oh, it was magnificent. It was a it was a magnificent tactical hard fought uh, race between two guys with very different strengths. Maniaya had the cornering speed advantage, but yeah, Miguel Oliveira had explosive acceleration out of turns one and three um the ktm chassis accelerating incredibly well um it was very very impressive indeed on that one um it was a very good tactical fight um both guys trying to feel each other out both guys um basically throwing the house at each other towards the end every i mean from banyaya overcooking almost every person just did not have enough of an advantage to make a move stick right until the very end where he was, he was basically what passes Miguel Oliveira at the final corner in a I'm going to win this race or crash trying move. Um, and, you know, it didn't quite come off um, beforehand, but it came off on the final corner. Um, and it worked out beautifully for him in the end. Um, very, very impressive performance from both riders there. And they, they will be doing this again, I think, for factory teams one day. They are both incredibly impressive riders and they deserve all the credit in the world because they are super fast. And um, yeah, it was it was, it was was a, a, a incredibly high quality fight. It really was. It was brilliant. It was, as Dre mentioned, the, the, we saw, and as I mentioned earlier, Austria is very good at this in showing up where bikes are strong and where bikes are weak. And, I don't know whether how, how much of it was biking, how much of it was just the way the riders had their bike set up, but I mean they will know better than me. But as Dre mentioned, the KTM was just getting out of corners so well in that Banyaya was very rarely in a position at the end of a straight to make a move because he was either you know too slow at the start of the straight and was unable to catch up by the end of the straight, or Oliveira was just so good on the brakes. Um, so any time mm. Banyaya made a move on Oliveira, he was having to brake too late um, to overtake him. Um, and then ran wide, as we saw a couple of times at the penultimate corner, where Banyaya would go up the inside of Oliveira and just simply run too wide, and Oliveira would just go straight back past him into the last corner, the, the second of the two rights um, that mm. followed closely afterwards. It was it was a brilliant tactical battle, as Dre mentioned, and also a brilliant battle in that 
until the very last corner of the race, and I think this just shows, Dre, how high a quality battle it was. The first mistake we saw, really, from either rider was Oliveira at the very last corner, and that is all it took. That's all it took. He left the door open on the final corner. All Miguel's got to do is, is like, basically turn in early and, you know, block the block, use the bike to block the apex. And if he does that, he's there, yeah. basically. And if he runs um, wide, it's fine because he takes Pecco with him. Exactly. Uh, Joe, take the inside of the corner and do do not let Banyaya take you. Exactly what Miguel did, and he left the door just open enough for Banyaya to block past. I mean, that's exactly what Banyaya would do and should have done and did do, and that's what got him the victory. Miguel just gave him half an inch too much on the final corner, and he was gutted not to win that race. You could see um, in Park Ferme afterwards, he was gutted. He was, he was very respectful towards Banyaya and you know, shook the hands of all the VR46 crew as well. He's a, he's a good kid, Miguel. He always has been. But you could tell he was gutted not to win that one. Um, and can you blame him in a, in a fight that was so close and for such critical importance for the championship as well? Um, you'll be gutty he didn't win that one. You will, and it looks like we are going to see this kind of battle for the rest of the season now, which which is encouraging for this championship. Which, um, I mean, Moto Three, with the way that season's gone, and we'll cover that shortly. Looks like that may well go down to the wire. Moto GP, it would take a miracle for that to go down to Valencia. Um, but it does look mm -hmm. as if Moto Two certainly will. Between these two, have been so evenly matched for so much of the season, and it does now look as if. KTM, since the summer break, have really got on top of their qualifying issues. They've now qualified towards the front in each of the last three races. And Oliveira, as I mentioned, was on the front row in Austria for the first time mm -hmm. this year. Um, so KTM now look as if they're in a position where they can actually give Oliveira and Binder the platform to actually go out there and race Banyayat from the start uh, without him having to sort of catch up in the first third of a race and do some mm -hmm. rather daring and risky overtakes early on. Um so, so yeah, that that gives us hope for the rest of the season that we're going to see these two battling on track quite a lot. Um, and yeah, you're you're right. But Oliveira will be will be disappointed to 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 have lost a race like that, particularly having having led it for so long, pretty much led it for the entirety of the race until the very last corner, until the final couple of hundred meters um, from the finish line. Um, but I think Pecco will take a lot from this, won't he? I mean, he. I think he, well, there's no question for me, he deserved to win the race, not just based on how quick he was through the early sessions. And in qualifying, he was sensational. His pace in qualifying was was incredible. No one could touch him. Um, and to chase down Oliveira like that and get on terms with him and then, you know, force him into that kind of mistake. I mean, think back to Oliveira, not just in Moto2, but in Moto3, Dre. How many last lap battles in terms of tactics have we seen Oliveira lose? Anyone? Not like, many. Not I many. Can probably count them on one hand. Like that, that's the kind of race that Oliveira almost always wins. Um, so for Pecco, psychologically between the two, for Pecco to beat Oliveira like that um, will do do wonders for him. Um, and it came at an important stage as well, didn't it? Because, of course, this was the first time this season that Banyaya went into the race behind Oliveira in the championship. Um, and knowing what he knew from last season, that the KTMs finished last season so strongly... It was important for Pecco for Skyview 46 to strike back straight away. And they did. Yeah, quite right. It wasn't important. Banyai's been in control of the champion pretty much from the start. Miguel taking that massive victory in Bruno and Marini actually doing a little bit of damage too by finishing in second that weekend. Um, opened the door for Miguel to take the championship lead for the first time this season. Um, 
and yeah, VR forty six basically punched him in the nose um, just a week later in Austria. Um, that was a critical win for Man United to get him back on top again, heading into Silverstone, a race he's gone well around before. Um, so yeah, looking forward to the next fight. I mean, Silverstone's a very open track. It's a track that's very open to wheel to wheel on track battles. I'm looking forward to seeing if if those two go at it again. Mm, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they get on at Silverstone. Um, in a week's time. Um, speaking of Marini, um, he finished third last weekend, just as he did, um, oh, sorry, just as he did in uh, Saxa Ring. It's his third straight podium, of course. The middle of those was a second place um, in in Bruno. Um, he didn't do this one from the front of the field like he has in previous races, though, where he'd been on that run of races where he qualified on the front row, and of course, at Bruno, he was on pole. Um, this time, he qualified down in 10th. He had um, the crash in qualifying, which brought the red flags out midway through the session, which uh, led Cal Crutchlow to say some very uncomplimentary things about race direction um, <laughs> because of how long they took to throw the red flags. And I have to say, although mm-hmm. Cal's uh, a little forthright, he's absolutely right on this occasion. They, they put red flags Agreed. Away, um, in qualifying in Moto2. Um, but sticking with Marini, he, with every race that goes past now, um, we get more and more confirmation that this kid has well and truly arrived in Moto2. He's the real deal. Yeah, it's not looking like a fluke anymore now. It really is. Turned the, I don't know what 46 or, you know, whether the Cheerios have changed all of a sudden. But, uh, yeah, he's looking really good all of a sudden. Um, again, like the streak is continuing. He, the way he's going right now, he might be the favorite for next year's championship because he's riding very, very well indeed. The first win is surely coming. Um, the, I mean, this, this race he wasn't going to win given, you know, the the, the front two had gapped themselves quite early. Um, but again, races before in Bruno and, and um, in the Saxon ring, he's contended for victories and it, it doesn't look like a fluke anymore. He's performing really well and you can't ask for any more than that. And the first win will come. I'm dead certain on this. He's, the, the amount of progress he's made in, the, in a short amount of time is, is startling. And he's, and he's performing in different types of races. He's performing in the on-track battles, even if he's not winning. Um, and you know, he's, he's again, he was he lost out narrowly to Binder in that Amir in Saxon ring, and this race again came up through the field to finish well. So, yeah, Marini is riding very, very well at the moment, and it's only going to get better, I think. Mm, yeah, absolutely, he's looking very, very good. He took third last weekend at the final corner at the expense of Alex Marquez, who crashed out. Um, and you know, that's his second consecutive DNF for Alex. Uh, he's going through a very, very tough run at the moment. And we're not going to go into too greater detail about Alex Marquez's problems because we did that last week. You can head over to YouTube right now, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101 um, mm-hmm. to, to find that segment and the uh, BT Sport commentary uh, as they discussed this, the very issue um, during the Bruno race. Um, but what we can say about Alex Marquez, and I know this is kind of kicking a guy while he's down, um, but... I guess a word of advice that we have, Dre, if you're a member of the fan club and you're getting sent out onto the racetrack after the race is finished in front of the hard camera to hand a flag to your rider, at least check that he's actually finished the race first. Yeah, it's like, I know it's like, I know it was a bit too close to the mark. Yeah. I mean, you've got to be ready for him. I mean, yeah, bad idea for the, for the, for, you know, for the Marquez fan club to be prepared for the flag on that occasion. It was understandable given how quick it is to get up the hill. But, uh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, a it's very like, oh, unfortunate no. uh, scenario we had at uh, Red Bull Ring. For those that may, maybe missed it on uh, on Sunday during the Moto 2 race, Alex Marquez runs wide at the final corner whilst trying to battle Marini for third. He crashes out. Um, whilst he's 
picking his bike up and then falling over again, trying to get it restarted. There's a member of his fan club up at the top of the hill at the end of turn one with a flag, an AM73 fan club flag for Alex to wave on the slowdown lap. And the poor guy from the fan club is looking back down the pit straight, looking for his rider um, who hasn't come down the straight. Uh, because he crashed at the final bend. It's uh, rather unfortunate, and it kind of sums up where Alex Marquez is at the moment, unfortunately. Um, just nothing yeah. is going his way um, right about now. He is still without a win um, this season. He is still third in the championship, though, although that is now coming under increasing pressure um, for Brad Binder, who uh, finished sixth for the seventh Again? time this year. <laughs> in, in 11 races, Brad Binder has finished sixth in seven of them. Um, and this one came with the fastest lap of, of the race as well. Um, but he's now up to fourth overall in the points. He's gone ahead of Lorenzo Baldazzari, who had a crash of his own um, last weekend in Spielberg. He went down um, with... Um, well, he went down and then basically tripped up his teammate coming around the corner shortly afterwards, didn't he? Augusto Fernandez, mm-hmm. who then ran over his bike later on. Somebody, of course, he was also involved in this crash and um, ruptured his finger and has had, had surgery on it um, since then. Um, but yeah, as it is, Marquez is on 113 points, two ahead of Binder, um, with Baldazzari uh, a further five points back in fifth on 106. Uh, and then shortly behind him is Joan Mir on 103, who scored uh, eight points for eighth place um, last weekend. A couple of other riders had uh, results worthy of, uh, of note. Um, Matteo Pacini back on form. Best result for him since he won the second race in Argentina. He finished fourth uh, and was right up uh, Luca Marini's um, t- uh, tail on the uh, way to the line. And Jorge Navarro, who finished fifth. Um, that's his career best in Moto2. Now, he's a rider, of course, who's on the move for next year. He is changing teams um, for 2019. Um, but that is his career best finish. Um, in the Moto2 class. So, uh, well done uh, to him. Um, the result then from last weekend, um, we'll run you through it quickly. Uh, Banyaya, the winner. Um, that's, of course, his uh, fifth win of the season um, to go with Oliveira's two. Um, he leads Oliveira in the championship as a result of that. We'll tell you the standings in a second. Luca Marini in third. That's his third podium in a row. Fourth went to Pessini um, in the end. Uh, as I mentioned, that's his best result since round two of the season back in Argentina. Um, fifth in the end, um, shortly behind him, went to Navarro. That's his best to date. Binder sixth, forever sixth. Um, seventh went to Marcel Schrotter, who was, of course, the sole Dynavolt rider um, last weekend. Um, just behind him in eighth position was uh, Joan Mir, as I've mentioned. And then came Fabio Quartararo, the winner back in Catalonia in ninth, just ahead um, of Ike Lacuona, who atoned in some part for his uh, crash on Saturday morning by rounding out the top 10. Um, Francesco Bagnaia leads the championship now. He's taken the lead back from Miguel Oliveira. Um, he is just three points ahead um, of the championship with eight races to go. Then that close battle that I've mentioned of Marquez, Binder, Baldassari, um, and then Joan Mia in sixth position. Seventh is Schrotter in the end. Um, Javi Vierge is in eighth. He's dropped behind his team as a result of not starting last weekend. Quattararo is ninth. And Matteo Pacini is 10th, although he is now under increasing pressure from Luca Marini, who stays 11th in the championship, um, but he is now just three points behind Pacini in 10th. Moto3 then, um, before we move on. Um, And it was another terrific race by by any any measure, by Moto3 standards, although it was possibly um, overshadowed by what we saw later in the day. Um, but some some great performances um, in in very different ways that we have to mention in this Moto3 race. And we have to start, Dre, with the winner. Um, 
the winner from pole position. Uh, Marco Bezecchi, his first ever pole position that he took um, on the Saturday. Mm-hmm. So congratulations to him. Maiden pole and his second career win. And the first of them that's come in a completely dry race, of course. Um, and putting Jorge Martins' um, ride to one side, because we'll cover that in a moment. Uh, but it was clear from the get-go that Martin was not at 100% um, physically. No. Um, so whilst Martin is having those physical problems, however he dealt with them, it was important that Bezeki punished Martin and gained however many points he could. And to Bezeki's credit, and again, as I've said this a few times with Bezeki, those little things that mark out a potential world champion, Bezeki is doing those this season. And this was another example of it. Whilst Martin's in trouble, Bezeki had to go out there and take maximum points, and he did just that. Exactly. I mean, of course, I'm sure Bezeki wouldn't want to beat Martin. Those circumstances are very classy, dude. There was nothing but big, hearty congratulations to Bezeki and respect for Martin. He just had to. Yeah, for twice in qualifying and after the race, um, given the circumstances. But uh, of course, you're winning for it, you're competing for a championship. And at the moment, you know, Bezeki has to take advantage of any opportunity he can get. And this was another one, and he cashed it in. Um, and he he rode magnificently well. He he yeah he was always in control of that Moto Free race. He always had a couple of attempts in hand compared to everybody else in the field. And uh, yeah, despite Martin and Arenas and uh, trying to, to to work their way around him, in the end there was there was just no easy solution for anyone else to get past him. He always, you know, he always found a way. <laughs> You know, to 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 stay out in front, and and that's what won him the race. It was a it was Bezeki's best ride in Moto Three to date, if you ask me. Yeah, certainly his best uh, weekend in Moto Three because he was he was the but he was the fastest rider in the field and the class above from the start, and and that's really to take nothing away from Bezeki. That's really what we've been waiting to see from him because he's he's kept uh, up with Martin in the championship um, and got ahead of him in the championship, of course, recently in a very different way. He's gone about his championship in a very different way to Martin, um, where Martin, mm-hmm. had he not had those multiple crashes and um, moments of bad bad luck and misfortune, uh, Martin would probably be a long way ahead of him. But Bezeki, through sheer consistency and regular podium finishing, has been able to keep himself on terms with or ahead of Martin in the championship. And we've said for, for, for many, many occasions this season that Martin is clearly the class of the field. But this was the first time where Bezeki was clearly the class of the field. Uh, in Moto Absolutely. Three, um, mm-hmm. and it came on a good weekend for him because, of course, he was announced earlier in the weekend that he's going to Moto Two next season with the Tech Three uh, KTM team um, in Moto Two alongside Philip Ertl. So Bezeki will be joining Martin in the intermediate class next season. So congratulations to him on that, and uh, he mm-hmm. marked it with a result that shows exactly why he's been so um, why Tech Three and Poncheral have been so keen to sign him up uh, for next season. Um, so Bezeki looking very, very good, and he has extended his championship lead as a result of that win. It's now up to 12 points. Um, but with all due respect to Bezeki, and I feel a bit bad saying this on the weekend where he mm. does dominate and win the race, that he was still overshadowed in, in a way by Martin. Because what a superhuman performance this guy put from, from the start of the weekend, really. I mean, we said last week when we recorded this show on, I think it was the Thursday night, that I, I said I'd be surprised if Martin raced. Um, Mm -hmm. and even now I'm still surprised that not only did he race but he did what he did um, in the race I mean first of all the the pain killing injections that they get at at Clinica Mobile in in MotoGP must be powerful Um, oh god yeah 
But even so, um, for Martin to have had surgery on a broken radius just eight days prior um, to to the race itself, and seven days prior to qualifying, where he qualified up on the front row of the grid um, in Spielberg, can we even... Are there superlatives in the dictionary for just how brave and how gritty and how tough Jorge Martin was last weekend? superhuman stuff from martin and i i say that with with full sincerity um that was an incredible performance from him that weekend he was in a hospital bed eight days prior and uh you know was was had to have been clearly been in a lot of pain to to make that work but uh yeah he was absolutely phenomenal um you would never have guessed he had just had a a severe injury um just eight days prior um and yet there he was he, he rode magnificently um just didn't quite have the race pace to to beat the very strong very fast kcms in this moto free race in this case Bezeki, who you know she just couldn't touch him on the straights he was so fast in a straight line i just think the Bezeki always had a tempt for two in hand but Martin again to to qualify on the front row just just a hundred or so behind Bezeki and then to to challenge him so strongly and get on the podium during the race was incredible, absolutely incredible from Martin and that might be a title saving performance from Martin's if he goes on to win the title it might you might be looking back at this round in Austria where he survived that that badly broken arm and came back there's, there's what could sum it up so well. Yeah, and still got out of the weekend with 16 points. And and Bezeki mm-hmm. had said, and this uh, sorry, Martin had said, this was referenced in, in Morning Warm-Up by Matt Burr on the World Feed, where he said that Martin had already said going to the weekend that if he doesn't end up racing because it's too painful, or if he hadn't even gone to Austria and Bezeki had won, and he'd been, um, well, as it was, uh, 28 points behind in the championship um, with eight races to go, he still would have backed himself, he said, to, to win the championship from there, given the pace he's shown this year. And, you can understand him saying that, given how many times he's won this year. Um, but it would have certainly reduced the margin for error. But to get out of there with 16 points and only to be 12 back and only lose nine on the weekend um, is is an incredible, as Dre says, it could be the result that ends up determining whether he wins the championship or not. Because it was another of those classic, you know, getting a result on your worst day scenario where, mm-hmm. you know, Martin's certainly not going to be in a worse physical shape than this for the rest of the year, um, assuming he doesn't crash again. Um, so to get out of there with 16 points was great and he, and he showed right the way to the end that um, whether he was struggling physically whether he had fatigue or not um, his his race craft and his, and his grit and his determination lasted all the way to the flag because he he had lost two spots on that final lap to the fast finishing Bastianini and then to Jean Messia um, but he showed at that very last corner with the manners he put on Messia put him off the road essentially at the final corner that um if he, if it needed proving just how badly this guy wants it oh god absolutely like it's sometimes it's 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 a simple case of i want it more than and that's what martin was all about this weekend you could tell right from the start he was determined to get back for austria that was i think always the aim for him that weekend yeah by the by the time he got to the end he proved it all right that's for sure again i want to know what's in the painkiller injections there how much morphine's in one of those things um, but, but uh, yeah, I, again, we can't speak highly enough of how ridiculous Jorge Martin was this weekend. Um, just magnificent stuff, and again, just just the the, 
the determination mentally and physically to get through that. It must have been agony by the end of that race. Um, but still, you would, you would never have guessed by watching it about how well he rode. But uh, yeah, incredible stuff. Mm, and Messia, who was the uh, the guy on the receiving end of that uh, forceful move, shall we say, at the final quarter from Martin, um, was in tears afterwards because it cost him what would have been his first ever podium uh, in Grand Prix because he made his uh, stunning debut here a year ago um, at Austria where he led the race, or sorry, ran in second and set the new lap record at the time um this time last year um he was obviously in third position going to that final corner when um first bastion was in second because bastionini came past him uh, and mm. then martin followed him through at the final corner to knock him in the end all the way down to sixth um as Messiah had to go all the way off the racetrack um at the final corner fourth in assen remains his career best um to this point for Messiah, but he is comfortably at the moment on target to win the Rookie of the Year prize because of Alonso Lopez's uh, failure to really to back up what he did at Jerez earlier this season. He's only scored points once since then. Uh, Lopez is on 31 points, uh, and Messia is a long way ahead of that. Um, at the moment in the championship, he has 54. So Messia looks set to finish as this year's top rookie, um, but the podium will have to wait. Um, Bastianini's right, though, Dre, uh, to come to and finish second, because um, given that Red Bull Ring is such a slipstream-dependent track, um, it, it, I found it astonishing that he and Dallaporta were able to turn themselves back on to that leading group and catch them the way they did at the end. Um, mm. Bastianini then, once he caught them, sliced through them in a lap, went straight through to second by the end of the final lap. Um, an extraordinary ride. I mean, first of all, it, it kind of begs the question why he was so far back to begin with, but an incredible ride, an incredible teamwork from the Leopard boys to chase back on. Smart riding. Very smart riding. You don't see in moto free very often where the teammates said okay let's let's get together and let's beat him basically they, they, the only way they were going to win that race or had a chance to win was if they worked together towed off each other and got up to the front of the field and bastianini and dana porter's pace was fantastic in open air um and on again and not to mention that bastianini in particular who got past three men on the final lap of the race to get on the yeah. podium he was sensational um that's the best i've ever seen an air bastianini ride a bike and he's a former race winner that was incredibly impressive on that final lap and you know again i he wanted it more than the other dudes did simple as that and that was a stunning bit of riding to get up the field like that and, and then pass everybody with such aggression and precision on that final lap when he had a very, very small margin of error to get back up to the front there, and he did in in in, in spectacular fashion. Brilliant riding from Bastinini, a well-earned second. Yeah, a brilliant result for him. And yeah, Dalla Porta came through to fifth in the end. He, he took advantage of Messiah's problems at the last corner to take fifth um, and set the new lap record as he was working together with Bastinini. They were both setting lap records as they were chasing on to that top four. Um, and obviously caught them at the start of the final lap and then went to business from there. Um, so great teamwork, and they were rewarded with a podium um, for Bastianini, but not quite enough for him to chase down Bezzecchi. Um Overall, then, we had Bezzecchi the winner from Bastianini and Martin. Uh, Albert Arenas, though, taking fourth. Now, that's his best result um, since, and it's his best result apart from his win at Le Mans um, this season, which is... Um, to not take anything away from the win because he he, you know, he earned it, but it's a bit of an anomalous result in terms of his his overall career um, results. Fourth out out of that is his best result in Grand Prix, so probably the best that Arenas has looked, with the exception of that win earlier on in the season. 
at Le Mans in his Grand Prix career. Um, with Delaporte to fifth and Messia in sixth. Uh, you'll notice we haven't mentioned the top two um, from Bruno yet. Fabio Di Gian Antonio, who we thought had made that big breakthrough and we're going to see um, more from, uh, from Di Gian Antonio now. Uh, and Aaron Canet, who followed him home in second, they were 10th and 11th over the line last weekend um, in the reverse order to have mentioned them. It was Di Gian Antonio 11th and Canet 10th, uh, with just 15 thousandths of a second splitting them over the line. That's a golden opportunity missed for both riders, isn't it, surely, Dre? They both suddenly opened the door again to challenge for the World Championship, and they went into a weekend where one of their key rivals had essentially one working arm, and yet they've come away from the weekend with Bezeki winning the race, Martin taking third, and they've both dropped out of contention again. Yeah, another another scrappy race from uh, DG and Canet there. Guys are, are capable of, of, of fighting for wins in the leading group. They are both more than capable of that. And once again, they left the door open, and now they're just as far back as they were two rounds ago. It almost wipes out what was both you know really solid rounds from them in Bruno. DG getting his first win, Canet in contention as well. And once again, they've been sloppy and it's cost them big time here because Bezeki won the race and Martin was on the podium as well, despite the, the the one functioning arm. Because they didn't have enough guys up the front to challenge them. It was only ever really going to be a, a group of four for the win until the final lap. So, yeah, just a, just a poor race from DJ Antonio. I mean, he needs to do better than that if he wants to be thinking championship. Hmm. Um, like, he, need, he needs to be thinking more than that. And as for Canet, I don't know where his head's at half Can, the time. Canet is so the big disappointment of the season for me. Um, yeah. And, and that's not just because I picked him to win the title at the start of the year. Um, but, and, and to be fair, I thought that was quite a safe, boring pick when I made it um, mm -hmm. with Canet. I thought he was the odds-on favourite. Uh, but he hasn't won a race all season. 10th um, last weekend, and do you know what tells me um, how poorly Canet has done this season, Dre? How we haven't... I don't know about you. I haven't heard a single rumour linking Canet with a Moto2 ride. None. Nada. Zilch. And, and, Zero. And, and, and he's in danger. I mean, who knows? He might, he'll might. he probably stick around with the Stella Galicia next season. Who knows? He might win the championship next year. But the longer this goes... and you know, I, I haven't got Canet's um, date of birth to hand, so I don't know how old he is. I'll check it while I'm talking. I think it's 19. Um, but... Yeah, 19. Quattararo, as we're going to tell you shortly, he's going to be MotoGP at 19 next year. Um, and Marquez, Marquez was in it at 20. Um, and I know they're, in some ways, exceptions that prove the rule. But Canet's overall sort of career prospects now, with every year that goes by, and he's still in Moto3, the chances mm -hmm. of him getting any further beyond Moto2 are more and more remote, aren't they? You'd think. He just seems like he's going to be another very swept under the swept under the carpet of, you know, just being swept up by being mediocre. He to, doesn't strike me know. as if he's any better than he was when he first got here. No, he looks like he's about the same dude. If anything, he might have regressed, like, not with frequently as he was last year. He was up there uh, much more frequently last season. This year, he's not been the same guy. He's been scrapping it out with other midfielders. And... It's not good enough for a guy of Canet's ability. I fear he might be another Nicolo Bulliger the way this is going. A guy that started hot, but has, you know, sunken into the midfield more frequently than not. I don't want him to be another guy to get swept up under the carpet by just how fast moving the classes can be 
as you mentioned, Quattararo is going to be the probably the youngest ever MotoGP rider next season, um, beating Marquez's record of being 20 when he debuted. Quattararo is going to be 19 because he's, he's not 19 until December, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy that, you know, the field's moving on so quickly. You've got to be exceptional at 20 or 21 now to get up there. Can is getting up to that point. And uh, the way it's going right now, the candidate looks like he's going to be another guy that's going to be fighting for scraps. And who knows? Next year might be the year. Um, but it looks like it's going to be another Canet Bastianini fight for the title next year. Mm. And both of those guys have had question marks over their overall quality of their careers to this point. Mm. It, it's interesting, though, because, uh, yeah, I mean, Canet, by the way, he, yeah, he turns 19 next month as Aaron Canet. So by the end of next season, when he's probably going to still be in most three, he will be 20. Um, but, yeah, we say that, and I would have thought that this season, Canet and Bastianini would have been title contenders, but then we didn't bargain for someone like Bezecchi emerging um, and taking them on. And who's to say that next season we're not going to have a, a Ramirez or a Messia or a Dalla Porta or, or a Rodrigo or someone like that who's going to suddenly emerge and, and take them on for the championship next season um, in, in, Moto, in Moto3. So... That that's the thing with 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 Moto three, and if you're a rider that stays in that class for too long, there's always you're going to become like Luti and like dare I say Alex Marquez are in Moto two, where you're, gatekeepers. Yeah, you become you become gatekeepers, and there's always going to be someone else at a younger age that perhaps has more potential than you do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the longer you stay in in those lower classes, the worse it gets for you, uh, mm-hmm. and the, 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 the less likely it is that teams are going to take notice of you. It's interesting you mentioned Bulliger because. Um, I heard rumours um, referenced on commentary last weekend on BT Sport that there's talk that Sky VR46 are going to put Bulliger into their Moto2 team next year um, alongside Marini, um, which is an interesting one. I mean, I-, I know what some people will be thinking. What the hell has he done in Moto3 to justify that promotion? Um, but I-, I think it's one of those that simply comes down to if you believe in the talent, then then, then stick with him and promote it. Um, and, and Bulliger is he's over six foot, um, so in many ways, just the size of the the guy that he is, he's probably better suited by this stage to a Moto Two um, than he yeah, is a Moto Three. So, so if Sky VR Forty Six truly believe in Bulliger, um, put him in your Moto Two team um, and just get him out of Moto Three because it's clear it's not working for him in this class. And if you still think that talent, sure. if you still think that talent's there, then back it. Yeah, just one question. Why didn't they promote Marco Bezecchi to that seat, if that's the case? Uh, good question. I mean, Bezecchi, I don't know. Bezecchi is a VR46 Academy rider, but he's not in their VR46 team, is he? I don't know whether that really makes a difference. Um, mm, but, okay. but, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they haven't done that. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe KTM made a compelling offer to Bezecchi and he took it. Um, Fair and, enough. And, and KTM have got... Just look at the. I mean, we'll cover it in more detail probably on a future show. But look at the roster KTM have got um, on the, at their disposal. I mean, MotoGP they've got Zarco, Polispargaro, Oliveira, and Siren. Uh, and in Moto2, just in their factory and satellite teams, they've got Binder, Martin, Bezeki, and Ertl um, as their riders. I mean, KTM have pretty much got it bottomed up, haven't they? Um, mm-hmm. in the just, uh, just in the top two classes, so um, so yeah, they they are looking pretty well sorted, um, for the future. Sticking with Moto Three though, um, and and the result last weekend, um, Bezeki the winner, uh, his second win of the year, um, for him in Moto Three ahead of Bastianini and Martin who completed the podium. Um, fourth in the end went to Arenas as we've told you, fifth to 
Um, Lorenzo Della Porta. And sixth went to Jean Messia, who, of course, was in tears at the end of that, having missed out on a podium. Seventh went to Sasaki, who won the battle of the second group. Um, and that came from outside the top 20 on the grid. So well done to him. Um, Rodrigo took eighth. Tony Arbolino, ninth. And then came the disappointing Canet and Di Gian Antonio. Um, shout out to John McPhee, who came from plum last on the grid to finish 12th after he trashed twice in qualifying. Um, Cooper Confile 13th, Philip Ertel 14th, and Marcos Ramirez uh, took the final championship point. Uh, championship standings then. Uh, and of course, we have just eight races to go in Moto3. Um, it's Bezeki leading on 158, 12 clear of Martin. Di Gian Antonio is now 37 points off the pace in third. Uh, with Canet and Bastianini close behind him in 4th and 5th. Um, it's then close behind from 6th backwards with Rodrigo 6th on 84, 4 ahead of Confile with Marcos Ramirez 8th, Dalla Porta up to 9th now, and Andrea Migno, who crushed out, was the only rider to crash out last weekend uh, in 10th position, just ahead of Ertel and Messia. Next round of all three classes is next weekend, the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. the news and let's rattle through it because we've uh, we've not got a lot of time to go on this show as we rapidly close in on the two hour mark once again our bad um but uh, <laughs> but, uh but a shout out to um one of motorsport motorcycle racing's favorite super villains nikki pedersen um because if you uh if you follow your speedway you'll know all about him he's the rider that's usually seen um the uh, sort of instigator in some sort of uh, paddock punch up at a speedway track um this time though he was celebrating because he took his first victory in nearly three years um, in the Speedway Grand Prix of Scandinavia, which took place in Sweden. Um, first win for him in nearly three years, because he's had a bit of an injury-struck uh, time of it right, lately. Um, injuries that almost forced him to the point of retirement. Um, but Pedersen taking his first win of the year and his first win for ages, um, which uh, was was nice to see for one of the great characters of Speedway. Ty Wolfenden finished close behind him and leads the championship by 14 points, um, with just a few races to go. So Wolfenden is very well-placed to take his third world title um motor gp news and uh, the one of the worst kept secrets in in motorcycle racing is all but confirmed now lynn jarvis has essentially confirmed that franco mobidelli and fabio quattararo will be riding their bikes um for their satellite patronus yamaha team in motor gp next season we're expecting an official press conference and announcement of it um on friday of next week uh, on the friday night of the british grand prix at silverstone because there are um, members of the Sepang International Circuit who are due to be at the Grand Prix next weekend um, in Great Britain. So we're expecting an announcement there next weekend. Um, very quickly on that, Dre, uh, Quattararo to MotoGP. As you say, he's likely to be the youngest MotoGP rider in history. Um, and I cannot shake the, the feeling that this is just a year too young, a year too quick for him. I'll, I'll, anyone that's, that disagrees with me, I ask one question. Give me one good reason why you'd run him ahead. I'll wait. Because that's the logic. Because like Bautista was in contention. I don't think he had any issue about staying with that team for next year. 
And if you ask me, Morbidelli and Bautista on a Yamaha is a hell of a team, quite frankly. Um, so I don't, I don't know what they're doing with Quattararo. I don't know if they're trying to go for the headline signing. Oh yeah, youngest GP rider ever. They're not going to be winning races and getting on the podium straight away with last year's Yamaha, especially if, if this year's Yamaha is anything to go by. Um, for so, me, if Patronus Yamaha are dead set on this and they're they're backing Quattararo. You better be patient with this kid, um, because because do not expect him to be be doing a Zarco. And I mean, he might do fair play, good luck to him. I hope he does. Um, but there's mm. no guarantee that he's going to be on the pace straight away uh, as a 19 year old in MotoGP, um, because I think that's too, that's unreasonable an expectation to put on any rookie, let alone a, a rookie agree, who's not even not even into his 20s yet. Um, and and if you're if you're confident that this kid is long term going to be the next super talent in Monte GP, then they give him your long-term backing and trust him. Um, and 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 you know, cause I, what I hope, and I really hope, I would hate Quartararo to be another of those young talents that gets chewed up and spat back out of Moto GP, um, mm-hmm. and and we never end up seeing the best of it. Um, so so that's my fear with Quartararo, in that. I've got every feeling that he's going to be a great talent in MotoGP. I mean, you know, you don't achieve what he did in the Junior World Championship at the age of 14 if you're not very, very good. Um, of course. And, and let's not forget, he did go straight into Moto3 Moto in his rookie season and was on pole position in his rookie season, was on the podium in his rookie season, and it kind of tailed off from them. You, know, you can argue he chose the wrong team, going to Leopard, um, and, and it kind of unraveled from there. Um, so... So we'll see on, on Fabio. Um, I, like I say, I just hope that the Yamaha and the Patronas team just trusts him and sticks with him and backs him and, and you know gives him the time to to learn MotoGP and just learn just learn being a, a motorcycle racer because he's still only in you know, his, his fourth season as a motorcycle racer. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, he, he's still developing as a, as a human being, as a, as a grown man. So, um, so give him time and I'm sure he will deliver for you. But I still remain to be convinced whether... In the cutthroat world that MotoGP is, uh, whether he'll be given that time, we shall see. Uh, Moto E News. Now they've confirmed their their teams, their tire supplier, uh, and their testing schedule for next season. Uh, they're going to be running three preseason tests all at Jerez. They'll be essentially running at the same circuits and the same tests as the Moto Two and Three preseason tests. Um, one of which is in November, and then another that is in February. Um, before the start of next season. They're going to do an additional test uh, at Jerez in April next season um, with the expected season opener to be at that same Jerez circuit um, when the Spanish Grand Prix goes there at the beginning of May next year. Um, Now, very quickly, Dre, on Moto E, which are going to be supplied by Michelin next year, they're going to be the tyre suppliers, um, sponsored by, uh, sponsored as we know, they've announced their title sponsors and their official supplier of Energica um, for next year. Um, You saw that bike... um, at Bruno last weekend, and admittedly, you won't have seen perhaps as much of it. They only do the, the short demo lap and then back in the pits again. But mm-hmm. from trackside, what were your because it has split opinion? What were your initial impressions of it? I think it. I think it'll warm on people. I really do. I think it's one of those things where, of course, beat your know, bike racing or even more traditionalist than F1 is. Um, quite frankly, so of course a bike with an all electric engine, there was people's going to go, ah, crap, it's not going. You know, they're going to want proper exhaust and proper engines and you know internal combustion and all that fun stuff. But 
I thought it sounded fine. I mean, like, like, I'm not the biggest proponent of electric technology. Sorry, Hazel. Um, but uh, like, I'm not the biggest Formula E fan in the world. But like, it sounds fine. I haven't got a problem with that. And it's actually kind of refreshing not to have bikes be loud as hell. Um, like, how these bikes are like 110 decibels when they're coming past. There's noise limits on these tracks for good reason. Um, these bikes are loud as all hell. Like, you'll actually be able to have a conversation during the race with these going past. They are a little bit quieter. They have a bit more of a buzz to them, of course, being electric engines and whatnot. I think it'll be fine. I really do. I don't, I don't like it's one of those things that people are going to speak the worst of it when they, when they actually see them all out on track racing each other and the technique that's going to be involved in riding them because they're going to be a lot of energy saving. There's going to be a lot of um, managing torque as well because they're going to be very torquey, these engines. You're talking not to 60 still in about 3.2 seconds, um, about 140 horsepower and about 150 mile an hour top speed. So they're not going to be slow. They'll obviously they'll be heavy because of all the batteries they're running, but they're not going to be slow by any stretch of the imagination. I think they'll be just fine. Uh, what I'm more curious about is how they're going to slot it in, slot it into the conventional GP racing ladder of MotoGP two and three. I'm not going to get into too much detail. I save that for next week. But uh, where it's going to fit into all that and how riders are going to play that angle of me, you know, maybe I want to ride for Moto E instead, mm. given they've got a lot of you know high ranking, high profile teams in there like Avintia, like Tech Three, etc. I'm curious to see how that fits into the conventional ladder because we've not had a radical change of the Grand Prix weekend format since the Q1, Q2 split change a few years ago. Um, so that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, it is interesting. And um, there, there, is, there was talk initially that they may put Moto2E Moto um, in that hour gap that we have between the warm-ups and Moto3, um, which is fine. Um, but uh, how many people do you expect to watch it when in Europe it's going to be taking place at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning? Um, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you know, a lot of people may only tune in, tune in still. I mean, we obviously cover all three classes, but there will be a lot of people in a lot of countries around the world that, that take MotoGP coverage, that only cover MotoGP, um, that, that don't cover Moto2 and 3. So um, I guess, you know, are we are we going to give them a reason to follow Moto2e? I don't know. Um, as Dre mentioned, the, the teams that are going to be taking part in this are, are high quality. They've added the Spang International Circuit team to this um, for next year. Um, there are six teams with two Moto E entries for next year that make up the entry of 18 bikes. Um, so here are the first 12 of them. Two for Tech 3, two for LCR, two for Pramac, two for Esponsorama Racing, which is the team that runs uh, Rabat uh, at the moment, uh, and Simeon in MotoGP. Uh, Grassini um, and the Angel Nieto team. And then six more teams that have a single entry, which are the Spang International Circuit, Mark VDS, IO Motorsport, Pons Racing, Dynavolt Intact GP, and SICK58. Um, so the teams that are going to be running these bikes are going to be high quality and high caliber. Um, but yeah, what was interesting, and we'll, as Dre mentioned, we'll probably discuss this on a future show, is how we haven't heard a single rider yet linked with any of those teams for next year. Um, so that that would be one of my questions at the moment, not just in terms of how the machines will race, but what caliber of rider are we going to have on top of them? Um, for next year are we going to have some riders who have fallen out of motor gp are we going to have riders who drop out of motor 2 or riders out of motor 3 or are we going to have riders from say the super spot 300 paddock that are going to come across and race these um who knows um uh, but we'll perhaps discuss that uh in the future the calendar for next year um that we're kind of in the air about that is going to be announced um at mizano um which takes place um of course two weeks after silverstone um 
And in t incidentally, in this press release, the riders for the inaugural season are going to be announced apparently at Aragon. Um, mm. So um, so whether riders have been signed, we shall see. But we haven't heard who those are. Um, Moto2 News, Angel Nieto, of course, who are handing over their MotoGP slot next year to the Spangens National Circuit Patronus team. Uh, they're going to be running two bikes in Moto2 instead for next season. They're going to be running two KTMs for next year. No word yet on who will ride them, um, but it does increase the growing ranks of KTMs uh, on the Moto2 grid for next season. Um, because the Angel Nieto team are going to be running two of them as well. Um, so uh, more news on that as of when we get it as to who are going to be riding their bikes in the intermediate class next season. Uh, and finally, World Superbike news. Um, Pedicini have announced their rider lineup for next season. Uh, Yoni Hernandez stays with the team. He's ridden for them already this year. He's going to have a teammate next year, though, in the form of Gabriele Ruyu, um, who is a teenage rider who is currently in the top 10 of the Stock 1000 Championship. Um, who is a uh, Pedicini junior rider. They are promoting him into their World Superbike team, which expands to two riders for next year. Uh, now, World Superbikes has also launched a global fan survey, um, basically to give you uh, your opportunity to voice your opinions on the future of the sport and earn yourself a video pass for free for the next round at the Portimao as a result of this. So there's no reason not to do this. Um, we were yeah. going to run through this and give you a bit of an insight into what this, this uh, survey is like because we have uh, opinions on this. We'll save it for next week's show um, because this because this, this survey is um, no doubt still going to be available then. And uh, next week's show is probably going to be a little bit shorter for this one, uh, shorter than this one. So we'll, uh, we'll slot that into next week's mm. running order and cover that uh, on episode 74. Um, the reason next week's show is likely to be shorter than this one is twofold. One, uh, because I'm going to have to hot foot it over to Silverstone for the MotoGP next weekend, so our time's going to be against me. And two, um, because the only racing this weekend is uh, at Cadwell Park, the British Superbikes that are in action this weekend, uh, as we wait and see who will be the king of the mountain. Um, Jake Dixon, quickest in free practice on Friday, as we speak to you, because it's Friday night, 17th of August, we're recording this. Um, but with every round that goes by, Drake, these races take on added importance um, with showdown spots up for grabs. And with all due respect to Haslam, Irwin, Dixon um, and Brooks, who all look pretty safe in the showdown, I think the focus for us this weekend is on 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th in the British Superbike Championship. And I guess the guy with the microscope shining very uh, brightly and very hotly on his uh, neck at the moment is Bradley Ray. Indeed, a lot of pressure on him. You know, the Danny Buckins in the showdown as well, that that sort of area. Brooks is, is probably safe now. As you know, Peter Hickman had a very good weekend last time out. I think Hickman could be due for a very big weekend at Cadwell if it's, if last year's anything to go by. Um, um, you know, I'll keep your eye on Hickman. I think he could win at least one race this weekend. Um, he, again, he's come back from Ulster on the on more on the road racing scene, and he's won over there as well. Hickman is on fire at the moment um so yeah keep an eye on that but yeah you're right because it's going to be on bradley ray yeah his season is is just fallen apart but compared to that opening weekend at donington and he's got a lot of very very good riders breathing down his neck um and that's the whole point of the showdown format is meant to make the, this sort of battles intriguing and bradley ray who started so strong is now looking struggly out he's, there to say the least vulnerable, isn't he at the moment and, and he, I mean, he was quick today, was Brad Ray, on Friday in practice. He was sixth in the first session, then fifth in the second. Um, so he's looking competitive, but he's, he's looked competitive at a few rounds and then not converted it into points. Now is the time mm. 
However competitive you are, now's the time just to bank the points and get them on the board and get yourself in that top six, and then you can go from there. And then you can start chasing wins and going for, um, you know, Rostrobal Hospital moves at the chicane like he did um, at, at Thruxton. So, yeah, key weekend for Brad Ray, key weekend for Bucken, who, um, along with Brad Ray, is the one of the two riders at risk, um, as the uh, Formula One FOM graphics would have it at the end of qualifying sessions. Um, mm. Yeah, Danny Bucken was second quickest today. Uh, just behind, well, I say just behind. He was half second behind Jake Dixon, but he was the next rider behind him uh, in the uh, in the timesheet, just ahead of Leon Haslam, uh, with Glenn Owen fourth, Brad Ray fifth, Laverty sixth, Cooper seventh, and Andy Owen eighth. Pitt Aikman was ninth in pre-practice today, um, but he has a, a track record, shall we say, around this place um, for winning before. So it is going to be a key weekend. By the time we speak to you next week uh, here on Bike Live, and it's a show that will likely come to you a lot earlier in the week. Uh, based on the times we're recording these, um, mm-hmm. the showdown picture will likely be an awful lot clearer because, of course, there will only be Silverstone to go uh, and the triple header there um, to sort the top six out. Uh, we'll be back next week to review everything that happens at Cadwell Park on episode 74 uh, here at Bike Live on Motorsport 101. Um, for those of you that back us on Patreon and listen to these shows live, um, it's, it's not a very... Uh, sociable time we'll be recording these i'm afraid so if you want to listen to us live you'll have to uh tune into the discord server around tuesday lunchtime um to listen to these uh, so if you're on your lunch break on uh, on tuesday and you happen to have access to discord you'll be able to listen to bike live recorded live because uh, it's quite frankly the only time we can we can record this before i have to go to silverstone um and mm-hmm. dre's not at work such is life. Um, so um, join us for that next week. Uh, don't forget, you can still get involved. By the time this goes live, you will still have time to get involved in our giveaway um, at motorsport underscore one on one for your chance to win uh, a copy of F1 2018 for the console of your choice. Um, get over to at motorsport 101 on Twitter uh, to find the tweet required and the instructions within it for how you can enter. Uh, and have a chance to win a copy of the brand new Formula 1 2018 video game from Codemasters. Uh, other places you can find us then, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, our website is motorsport101.com. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, earn yourself early access to our shows and earn yourself double the opportunities to win uh, F1 2018, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, next week, then, we have episode 74 of Bike Live covering Cadwell BSB. And, Dre, um, we have episode 156 of Motorsport 101. Um, and we're the second part of the season, if you like, ready to commence at Spa in around a week's time. Um, it's F1 mid-season review time. Yeah, everybody's favourite cliche mid-season. And the mid-season review time. Sadly, I won't be on next week's show, Work Commitments. Sorry about that. But um, yeah, RJ King and I'm sure a plethora of guests will be reviewing the F1 season so far, team by team. That's always fun. As well as reviewing the IndyCar return. Um, the second half of their season kicks off at Pocono, the Tricky Triangle, this weekend. Um, can anyone you know, start to reel in the 50-point lead that Scott Dixon has at the front of the championship right now? They're running out of rounds to do so. Um, so more on that very very soon um but so yeah a stacked episode 156 next week my thanks to andre harrison for joining me my thanks to all of you for listening uh whether it's live on discord or via the uh, downloadable version uh, of the podcast uh we'll be back next week for episode 74 of by clay from Motorsport 101 and episode 156 uh, of m101 for myself and dre we'll see you next week 